Hello, my geeselings. It is Mother Goose Robinson. Again, here with another introduction, this time for Robinson's podcast, number 38. Last week, or I guess this week, somebody referred to me in a comment as Mother Goose for the first time, and it was a really transcendental moment for me. I'm, I'm glad to know that I'm having an impact on geeselings out there everywhere. And this episode will be no exception. It is with the singular Graham Priest. Now, Graham is currently a professor, a distinguished professor, at the CUNY Graduate Center in philosophy. And his doctorate in mathematics is from the London School of Economics. And Graham has pretty much taught everywhere other than Antarctica. And I was lucky enough to study with Graham when I was in New York. So he's a phenomenal teacher. He has a tremendous, as you'll hear, a tremendously wide variety of interests. So ranging from metaphysics to the philosophy of math to some serious foundational work in logic he's done to Eastern philosophy and political philosophy, and the list really goes on. And he's one of the most influential philosophers still working today. So it was it was awesome not just to talk to him, but to talk for about three hours. And yeah, so you get a lot of Grand Priest. You get more of me than you'd like. But I think it's it's really a phenomenal episode. And if I'm looking back on the podcast 300 episodes from now this will still be um, one of the best and the most important for me so i hope that you enjoy this as much as i did and i'm now realizing that i didn't really tell you at all what we talked about so i should do that uh, so a lot of what we talked about was related to quine uh wvo quine who's one of another one of the most influential philosophers of the 20th century. We talked about his paper on what there is, and that led us into on what there isn't. And so that means we, we talked a lot about nothing and non-existent objects and nothingness. And we also talked about how this relates to possible worlds, impossible worlds, the philosophy of mathematics, and it also served as an entree or entry for those of you who don't speak French into Eastern philosophy. So we talked about the Japanese philosopher Nishida and his work on nothingness. He's a, a Zen philosopher of the Kyoto school. And we also talked about the Nyaya or Nyaya. I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, they they were a, a school of Indian philosophy, and their writings or thinkings on absences and nothingness. And after that, we talked a bit more about Buddhism, more broadly construed, some of the issues in metaphysics, philosophy of mind, philosophy of language. We talked about <clears throat> ethics and how... At the core of Buddhist philosophy, in a way that isn't so much at the core of English philosophy, there remains a focus 
or a central concern on how to live one's life. Then, other than that, we talked a bit about uh, Graham's own interests and his story, just to satiate my own curiosity. So we talked a bit about his illustrious career as a martial artist, how he went from the philosophy of math, well, from mathematics to the philosophy of mathematics and logic, and then to all of these other interests. But now I'll get back to my uh, farewell to you, geeslings, that I started like two minutes ago. I hope you love this episode just as much as I did. And I've already listened to it once uh, beyond having actually had the conversation. So there's no shame in listening to it a few times. So, I, I mean, I doubt that we'll have time to cross the entire gamut over the course of this conversation, but you've worked on a pretty incredible variety of topics, especially considering how hyper-specialized philosophy is today. I mean, you've worked on philosophy of math, logic, metaphysics, and then Eastern and political philosophy. And I'm still probably even leaving out a lot. But you started out as a mathematics student. I'm wondering if you already had all of those interests to begin with, or if not, how they sort of accrued over the years and you ended mm. up working on so much. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're right. I started off as a mathematician, and um, my doctorate is actually in mathematics. But by the time I finished that, I, I knew I was much more interested in philosophy. Uh, I wanted a philosophy job. And someone was foolish enough to offer me one, so I took it very happily. Um, and given my background, obviously my main interests were in those places in philosophy which most closely relate to uh, mathematics. So philosophy of mathematics is obvious, but logic also, of course. Although kind of ironically, um, for the first you know, period of my life as a professional philosopher, I was uh, teaching philosophy of science, um, about which I knew very little. Um, and given my background, I really didn't know much philosophy when I started. So I've had to teach myself. Um, and, you know, I've been around the profession <clears throat> for a long time now and been educating myself in the process. And it's been a blast. And that, actually not knowing much philosophy was a bit of an advantage because... Um, it gave me the freedom to just follow my interests wherever they they went, and they've wandered all over the place, as you observed. Um, and something about philosophy, um, which I suppose most philosophers know in principle, but maybe not in practice, is that <clears throat> philosophy is really an integrated whole. So one might think of the bits is very specialised, and as you said, they sort of are in a way. But um, philosophy is a subject where everything links together in the end. And you may start with an interest in a particular area, but you seem to understand that it's got that area has connections with other bits, and so you get you follow those up, and then you find that they've got interconnections with other bits. And and in the end, you know you. If you just follow up your interests, you can go all over the place, which is what I've done, essentially. 
as I said, I've enjoyed every minute of it. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that not coming up, so to speak, within philosophical academia when you were getting your doctorate sort of prevented you from becoming indoctrinated in certain ways. And that I get the sense that some of the barriers are sort of crumbling, but that there hasn't always been a ton of interaction between Western and Eastern philosophy or even what's called analytic and continental philosophy. And since I suspect that we'll talk about some things in all of those areas today, I'm curious how you feel about the distinction between analytic and continental philosophy and if it really, uh, well, one, what they are to you or if they can even be uh, sort of defined uh, and if yeah. there if there's a meaningful distinction between them. Yeah. No, that, that's that's a, a good question, a very interesting question. Um, you know, when I started, I, I've always worked in the Anglosphere, um, you know, the UK, Australia, uh, the US, uh, which is sort of dominated by so-called analytic philosophy. And um, so uh, I, I think most of me, most people think of me as an analytic philosopher. And certainly most of the philosophy I was teaching for a long time was analytic um but uh as you say you know um given that i didn't know much philosophy where i started was a bit of an advantage because i could go wherever my interests led and uh, my interests have led me all over the place including continental philosophy you know i i happen to think that heidegger is one of the philosophers from the 20th century who will still be read 300 years from now um so, uh, although, you know, I don't write like many continental philosophers write, I'm, I'm certainly interested in many continental philosophers. Uh, and, and the same is true of Asian philosophers. Um, uh, and, and, I mean, you asked specifically about the analytic continental distinction. But it, if you look at Western philosophy from the perspective of the East, the distinction between analytic and content philosophers looks like a family tiff, oh, really? which is what it really is. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, they both stem from the same roots. They both deal with similar problems. They both, both go in similar directions. There, there are sort of characteristic differences of style of writing. I definitely noticed that. But, I mean, if, if you know about the history of philosophy, You'll know there are so many different ways of writing good philosophy. You know, Plato is not Aquinas, it's not Kant, it's not Nietzsche, it's not Wittgenstein, um, it's not Heidegger. Um, so the, the way you write philosophy doesn't define what philosophy is. Um, and if you want to engage with a philosopher, and, and I haven't mentioned the Asian philosophers, but that adds a whole new dimension to the style of writing philosophy, styles of writing philosophy. Um, but if you want to engage with a philosopher, then you have to understand their voice. And that can be hard if you're, it's a style of writing you're not used to, and they're all going to make different assumptions, have different presuppositions, be familiar with different things that you're probably not familiar with. 
So you've got to work your way into any philosopher. Um, and of course, you know, when you train as an undergraduate, that's exactly what you're doing. You're working your way into the thinking of a few philosophers. Um, so that when you become a professional philosopher, if you become a professional philosopher, you will uh, be very familiar with certain kinds of philosophy uh, and you'll find them easier than others. Um, but, you know, there are great philosophies in every philosophical tradition and so there are things to be learnt from them. Um, and if you're content to stick in one area, one kind of philosophy, that's fine. But, I mean... I've always found that engaging with philosophers from different times, different traditions, actually enriches my understanding of philosophy in very profound ways. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm very happy that my philosophical interests have wandered across space and time. Mm -hmm. And, well, just like Quine isn't uh, Russell or isn't Davidson or Lewis and... Sartre isn't Hegel or Heidegger. Are there still broad ways in which you, if, in which you feel comfortable characterizing the style of continental versus analytic philosophy? Yeah. Well, So, um, as you said, you know, there isn't really one thing which is analytic philosophy uh, or one thing which is continental philosophy. Um, you know, Russell writes very differently from um, the later Wittgenstein, who writes very differently from Rawls, um, who writes very differently from Austin. Uh, and on the kind of continental side, Sartre writes very differently from Foucault, who writes very differently from Heidegger. You know, so there, there, there's a bunch of things. Um, to the extent that there's a difference, I mean, I, I think it's more in the different styles of writing, though. I mean, often the problems that each are engaging with are very, very similar. Um, Often the ideas they come up with are very similar. You know, in many ways, Derrida is very similar to Wittgenstein and bits of Quine and so on. Um, sometimes they have very different perspectives, and that's that's enriching. But um, it's not really in their content that they differ. Uh, it, it is in the voices. Um, and um, generally speaking, although not exclusively, um, People who write in the Anglo tradition are coming more from a scientific background, whereas people who are trained in the the, the European traditions are, are trained more in a uh, in a literary background, yeah. and that shows. I mean, that's a sweeping generalisation, of course, but that that tends to show in their writing. So, Anglo philosophers often pay more attention to science than European philosophers. European philosophers tend to pay more attention to literature. Um, so that's that's one difference. Um, if you want to say there's another one, um, often European philosophers are much more concerned with big picture issues, um, and Anglo philosophers often get into the weeds of nitty gritty more. But that, again, that's a sweeping generalisation. There's a lot of nitty gritty in Heidegger, um, but um, I mean that that difference shows. 
in um, the vices of or typical vices of uh, Anglo philosophy and European philosophy, um, because you know there are profound thinkers on different sides, but not everyone is a profound thinker on either tradition. And um, European philosophers criticise Anglo philosophers for being sort of lost in the details, missing the big picture. Um, and I think that often that's true. Uh, they do. Uh, and Anglo philosophers often criticise um, European philosophers for um, lack of attention, attention to detail. Um, uh, and I think that's true too. So, um, you know, there, there are virtues and vices which go with both kind of orientations. But uh, in the end, yeah, I think if you're a philosopher or a philosophy student, you need to look at all the great philosophical traditions and look at what the great philosophers say uh, and understand what they have to offer to, to philosophy. Of course, sometimes it's difficult to know who's a great philosopher and who's just a bullshit artist. Mm -hmm. But that runs across all traditions, right? And that's not necessarily an easy judgment to make. That's something you have to work hard to determine. In that spirit, though, I was maybe a year or two ago talking with a cousin of mine who is getting a PhD in philosophy also at Stony Brook. And he's doing, I mean, whether we want to call it continental or not, he, the the philosophy he's studying doesn't intersect with what I've been studying at all. And we sort mm -hmm. of did a little paper exchange in which I asked him mm -hmm. to pick the paper that he thought was uh, most important from the 20th century of, of the tradition mm -hmm. he'd been studying. And I did the same. And he sent yeah. me a paper of Derrida's and mm -hmm. it could have just been the the difference in style that you were alluding to, but I couldn't parse it at all. And whereas mm. I sent him uh, a paper by Quine, who I think of as one of the, the mm. quintessential uh, analytic voices. And I sent him on what there is. And mm. I think that that's probably a, a good start for us to get into some more uh, substantive philosophical questions. So you told me once, I think, that you used to be a very devout Quinean. And mm. I'm wondering if we could start by laying out what that meant for you, and if mm. that was in reference to this particular paper and the thesis that Quine lays out. Um, yeah, that was certainly one of the papers that influenced me. Um, let me just ask you though about your interchange with your friend from Stony Brook. Um, uh, presumably, you both agreed that the other person's paper was largely sort of very difficult to understand, maybe unintelligible. Yeah, precisely. Yeah, I'm very interested yeah, I mean, though that, yeah. in in psychoanalysis and reading those philosophers, but I just haven't had enough time to devote to it seriously and like you like you mentioned i think it will take a it'll take a lot of work to understand the voices in that tradition yeah well you know it's it's what you find easy is a function of your education in philosophy 
Um, I mean, given my background, I, I came to reading philosophy by reading Frege and Carnap and Quine and Russell. So I found those things easy. Um, but I, people trained in the European tradition don't find those papers easy. I remember talking to someone once um, and I said that, you know, I, I, I found reading Frege easy, uh, uh, or Kripke easy, um, but, you know, people like Derrida I struggle with. And their friend said, oh, Derrida's easy. You know, this guy Frege unintelligible to me. You know, that, that's just a matter of what you're used to. Um, okay, so let me, that, that was sort of tangential to your question. Let me come back and talk about Quine. Look, Quine is this, uh, one of the most influential Anglo philosophers of the 20th century. No doubt about that. Whether he's going to be read in 300 years' time, that's a different question. I suspect not, but oh, wow. you know, that's sheer speculation. Um, you know, there, if you look at the history of philosophy, there are so many philosophers who have been influential at their time, and no one reads them out. Like Wolf uh, in the 17th, 18th century, and Lotzer in the 19th century. Um, so the fact that somebody's influential in, in their epoch doesn't mean they're going to last. Uh, which, of course, raises the question of why do why you know some philosophers do last. But you know, we, that, that's another question. We can go there if you want, but uh, that wasn't your question. Um, so, uh, a lot of stuff I read when I was young was Quine, and I was very influenced by his views. I mean, he, he's a, he's a great philosophical stylist, um, you know, and he also has this um, gift for acute turn of phrase, you know, no entity without identity, to be is to be the value of a bound variable, etc., etc. Actually, when you start to look very carefully at Quine, what you find is that where you really want an argument, you just get acute turn of phrase. But rhetorically, it's very effective. Um, so, uh, anyway. I was very influenced by Quine, as many Anglo philosophers were. Um, and I suppose at one time in my life, I'd have thought to myself as of Quine having got all the things he talks about right. Well, maybe not the positivism. I mean, he, he was pretty much an unregenerated positivist, and I never really subscribed to that stuff. But the, the views about logic, the views about ontology, um, Certainly those. Um, but then as I read other philosophers and thought about these issues more, I came to reject a lot of the Quinean themes. Um, and the first major break with Quine was with about the nature of logic. Because, you know, in theory, he's, uh, he's very tolerant to changes in logic. In practice, he I isn't. He's think, a dyed-in-the-world yeah, I think one of his turns of phrase is a change of logic is a change of subject. Yeah, that's just um, a complete confusion. Uh, any more than a change in your physical theory is a change of subject. You know, the change from Newton to Einstein did not change the subject any more than the change from, um, I don't know, uh, Frege to Brenner. Um, but anyway, that's an aside. Um, so, you know, 
early in my career, I worked a lot on the logical paradoxes and became convinced that classical logic was really not the right way to handle them. So uh, I soon, in my career, became uh, a non-classical logician. Someone who thought that you know classical logic is okay, but it's very limited. It's very good for some things, but really it's not the right logic for a number of things. And so the first break with Quine was uh, about classical logic. And then the second break with Quine uh, came later. I had the good fortune to uh, meet Richard Sylvan, Richard Routley as he was at the time, who was a, uh, a Mainongian. That, that, I hate the word Mainongian because there's a kind of ideology that goes with it. That, you know, Mainong was this loony fruitcake um, who had these wacky ideas. Um, but, uh, you know, um, even though, you know, Russell was a Mainongian early in his career, uh, good common sense soon um, uh, replaced these kind of wacky Mainongian ideas. And Russell and Quine were good common sense philosophers. I mean, th this is just crazy. I mean, e every major logician um, and many philosophers were so-called Mainongians until, you know, um, the end of the 19th century. All, all the great medieval logicians believed that some objects don't exist. Um, and it was actually the kind of the view that they don't, which was the radical view, uh, and actually the very uncommonsensical view, because uh, you ask most people, so they'll tell you some things don't exist, like Father Christmas, Santa Claus, maybe God. Um, so I don't like the word Mainongian. Uh, I much prefer the the view the, the, the word that Richard Sylvan coined, nunism, just which means some things don't exist. But when I Richard I wasn't when I met Richard I wasn't a nunist. Uh, I, I thought Mainong was completely wacky. And I argued with Richard for several years. You know, we, we soon agreed about power of consistency, um, but we disagreed for many years about about nunism. Uh, I thought the view was just crazy. Uh, but arguing with him for many years, he uh, he he showed me that I was wrong. Uh, that the arguments I thought just destroyed my nun were just crazy, um, and so I became a uh, a nunist too. Um, and so that was the second major break from Quine, uh, uh, you know, to be is to be the value to be to be is to be the value of Bavaria. It is just a bit of dogma. And if you look at on what there is, um, you'll see the arguments are pathetic. I mean, uh, he runs through all the things that might express uh, existence. So I'd like to I'd like to go um, through this this paper okay. in particular in a a bit more detail just to make it more understandable for people who aren't uh, philosophers. Uh, and maybe, maybe you were about to go through some of those arguments in more detail, but like, how do you explain the slogan to be is the value uh, to be is to be the value of a, a bound variable to somebody who, who doesn't really have much of a, a background in logic? Like what is the, the meat of the thesis that he's he's putting out there yeah okay good so um modern logicians and linguists um operate 
with the notion of a quantifier phrase. Um, probably best explained with some examples. They're things like some, all, many, most, few. Um, and usually they're coupled with count nouns. Some dogs, few people, many cats, uh, and so on. Okay. Uh, and of course, um, these play a significant role in arguments, and so they've been uh, a mainstay of logic ever since there's been logic in the West. Um, 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 the way they're handled was revolutionized in the late 19th century, principally by Frege, um, who wasn't coming from philosophy, he was coming from mathematics. Um, but the modern conception of a quantifier is due not just to Frege, you find it in Peirce and other philosophers, but Frege, I think, is the most significant writer, certainly the most influential. And in logic before that, people didn't draw a clear distinction between quantifier phrases and noun phrases. Um, so noun phrases are, noun, uh, are phrases that refer to particular objects, like um, proper names, like Bertram Russell, uh, definite descriptions, like um, know, the King of France. Um, and in traditional logic, quantifier phrases like some cats, all mortals, were kind of assimilated. Um, so it was clear they didn't quite refer in the same way, but people still try to analyze them in terms of some notion of reference. Um, and that went completely out the window with Frege. Uh, and modern linguists, modern logicians regard them as sui generis grammatical category. You've got to understand their semantics in a totally different way, um, which is the way that modern linguistics and logic understands them. So, if you use a quantifier phrase like some cats or all mortals, you're essentially dealing with a bunch of objects. Uh, and then the quantifier phrase will tell you um, that some of these objects or all these objects or many of these objects or few of these objects have a certain property. So, um, I don't know, is that is that good enough to broach the subject of quantifier? Yes, yeah. Well, I think you might also want to say something about the existential quantifier in particular, because I think you, you only mentioned uh, the quantifiers that talk about plural objects in the plural or pick out objects in the plural, but maybe that's where you were going. Well, no, I mentioned some. Okay. Some is the particular quantifier. Right? Okay. Yeah. And um, what logicians call the existential quantifier is there is the phrase there is. And if you ask any linguist, they will point out to you that this is not a quantifier phrase. I mean, I've been a logician for many years before I was informed of this by, by linguists, and I was gobsmacked because it, for me it was the paradigm quantifier, and it's not even a quantifier. Um, uh, the particular quantifier, I mean, you know, the, for, for logicians, there are two paradigm quantifiers the universal quantifier and the particular quantifier, all and some. Um, but the Quinean view is that you should read some 
as an existential quantifier, so some means some existent, and therefore you can paraphrase it as there exists. Right. So to come around to Quine, um, Quine argued that um, some expresses existence. In other words, some means there exists. Okay, and that's what you find in the the paper on what there is. I don't know if to what extent I've addressed your concerns. I, I think you have. I, I have a historical question, though. Was it referred to as the existential quantifier before Quine? Well, um, of course, people didn't speak about quantifiers before Frege. Right. Frege does speak about effectively about quantifiers. Um, he, he argues that um, in German, some and the German phrase is gibt. There, there is, if you like, in English. It gives, um, maybe, in, in German. Well, yeah, the verb is, is yeah. given. But, um, but, you know, one, one thing you start to realize when you look at different languages is the phrase there is is itself idiomatic because in other uh, European languages, let alone other languages, a different verb is used. As gibt is given, it, it gives. Uh, uh, in French, il y a. Uh, avoir that there has yeah, that's interesting. Um, so, so even tying it to the verb to be is parochial. Okay. Um, so Frege points out that um, when mathematicians use the word um, uh, some and as gibt that there are, they mean much the same thing. Um, and that's true, although it may well be an idiom of mathematics. Um, but in a much less well-known passage of Frege, he points out that when you say this, this has nothing to do with reality. Mm -hmm. um, it's just a, a term of art that mathematicians use. Um, and, uh, I mean, he point, in his discussion of um, uh, the ontological argument, for example, in his lectures of 1920, um, he clearly distinguished between um, the particular quantifier and something which says that something exists in reality. So you, you can define um, uh, God in a certain way using a particular quantifier, something which is has all the perfections, um, but um, whether such a thing actually exists, even though you use this word some, is, is a quite different matter. So right. I... Um, People often sheet the thought that the particular quantifier is the existential quantifier back to Frege. Um, in, in some sense, that's it's in Frege, but uh, he's much more has a much more sophisticated view. And it's really Russell who first ties down um, the particular quantifier with the existential quantifier, and, and Quine picks it up from Russell. And so I don't I don't have the paper in front of me, but I recall that I mean it begins with something along the lines of there's some very uh, potent or important question in the English language and it's what is there I think he says it can be it can be expressed in three monosyllabic mm -hmm. English words what is there and it has a very simple answer and it's everything but his paper isn't so much about what there is so much as what our language maybe commits us to at least if uh 
the thesis is to be is to be the value of a bound variable. Yeah. So what then is he making a more broad ontological claim about what there is beyond just the use of our language, or is it the thesis about what our language commits us to that you found not compelling upon revisiting it? Okay, so um, you're right. Um, what his view is, is that if you take a theory which is true, then, and if you subscribe and to that And a theory, theory just being a, um, a collection of, of sentences, or is that... That's the logician's definition. Right. But of course, uh, in real life, theories are not quite like that. You know, the theory of evolution, the theory of relativity, uh, you can try and formulize them in logician sense, but they're not really like that. But he just means some kind of description of something out there in reality, okay. which you take to be true. If you quantify it over something, then you're committed to holding those things exist. Okay. Um, and sometimes, you know, we do think like that, you know, uh, if you're a realist in physics exactly, um, and you apply over electrons, then you suppose that electrons exist, although if you're an instrumentalist, you're going to disagree with mm -hmm. that. Um, but Quine was no instrumentalist. But, um, you know, it, that, that, that's only one kind of theory. I mean, we have all other sorts of theories where we um, talk about intentionality. That's intentionality with a T, mental yeah. states. Folk psychology. Directed, yeah, well... Yeah, but a particular aspect of folk psychology, um, people's intentional states, those that are directed um, to beliefs, fears, what one worships, what one admires, and so on. Um, and, you know, if, if, it, if I admire Sherlock Holmes' powers of inference, um, there's something that I admire even though Sherlock Holmes' powers of inference don't exist. Or if, if, um, if I go to Baker Street uh, looking for Sherlock Holmes, I'm looking for someone, um, I won't find them there because they don't exist. But, I mean, in, in our theories of intentionality, we, we quantify over non-existent things all the time. Um, I mean, and I might say to you, well, I wanted to get you something for Christmas, but... Uh, I couldn't get it because I discovered it doesn't exist. You know, Sherlock Holmes deerstalker. Uh, so um, this this is the vernacular, but it's also inscribed in theories of intentionality. Um, so uh, our descriptions of the world um, and people and how they operate in the world uh, does seem to quantify over non-existent objects. But, so I gather, I also seem to recall at the end that where Quine does make some sort of ontological claim about what there is in the world, he says something mm -hmm. to the effect that maybe he's personally ontologically committed to whatever physics quantifies over, our, our best theory of the physical world. So I, mm -hmm. do you think that he would well i don't i don't think that he, i can't imagine that he would uh disagree with or i can't imagine that he would say that he's committed to 
Sherlock Holmes existing because he's happy to use that um, in vernacular to quantify over him. No. No. Um, so, uh, yeah, Quine didn't like any talk of mental states and intentionality. I mean, as I said, he was an unreconstructed positivist about these things. Um, okay, modern theorization is a bit more, is a bit less positivistic. Um, we we take discussions of human mental states very seriously now in a way that Quine did not. Okay, it's not quite true to say that Quine was only concerned with physics, um, because he was also concerned with mathematics, um, and mathematical entities. Even he thought were not physical entities. Um, I mean, he did think that mathematics was used in physics, um, but that's. That's another matter. But he, he was quite happy to take mathematical entities to exist simply because we quantify with them. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he was happy to do that, though. Um, no, I mean, that one time he tried to get away with nominalism, but then mm-hmm. he you know decided that you couldn't do it. So at least he put his money where his mouth was. Mm-hmm. And Okay, so now that I think we've laid it out more clearly... What was it in particular with this formulation that you diverged with? Well, I hold that some things don't exist. Okay. And I've just given you some examples. Right. And if I say that and I take that to be true, which I do, Obviously, some does not mean some existent, because that would make it a blunt contradiction. Some existent things don't exist, and I don't think that, or if I do, that's another matter. Okay. And so I, I don't think we, ex- or you explained just who Alexius Minong was and what his beliefs were and how yours sort of, you were influenced by him or Richard Sylvan was. Well, um, I guess I was more influenced by Sylvan than Meinong, but Richard was certainly influenced by Meinong. So Meinong first. Um, at the end of the 19th century, there was um, a school of philosophers sort of that spun off Brentano, who was a psychologist philosopher, um, who was very concerned with the philosophy of mind and how you understand attributions of mental states, especially intentional mental states. Um, and there were many philosophers who worked in his wake. Meinong was one of them. Um, uh, and a number of the Polish philosophers, like Twardowski was another. Um, um, Meinong was a very systematic and broad sweeping philosopher who's been largely ignored um, by posterity. Uh, but one thing that Meinong did was um, provide a taxonomy of objects, some of which exist, some of which don't, different kinds of existence, um, different kinds of properties of objects like con- inconsistency and completeness. So he has a, has a very systematic taxonomy of the objects that are theorizing, particularly about the mental, deals with. Um, and some exist, some don't. Uh, okay. Um, and uh, Richard um, took up the view that some things don't exist. 
And um, as I said earlier, in, in arguing with, with Richard, he persuaded me that the sort of Quinean arguments that I was marshalling against him just didn't work. Did Meinong have a, a fleshed out philosophy of math? Um, okay, I'm not a Meinong scholar. Okay. Uh, and I don't know the answer to that, but not as far as I know. He certainly alludes to mathematical objects. Um, uh, he he takes them to exist, um, unlike some objects. Uh, Richard Sylvan held that they were non-existent objects. Uh, actually, I agree with Richard about that. But um, Meinung has two words, as does German for existence. Existieren and bestehen. Um, and Meinung restricted the word existieren, the, the verb existieren, to concrete objects and um, bestehen to abstract objects like numbers and propositions and so on. Um, but he didn't think that all objects that do not exist have, have bestehen. Um, that, that was actually Russell's view um, in the principles of mathematics in his Meinungian phase. Um, so, sorry, that's a slight digression from the question. Um, back to the question. Meinong certainly takes, um, alludes to mathematical objects, which he takes to Bishtand. Uh, but I'm not sure that he had a, a very worked out theory of mathematical objects. But, uh, you know, th there's a very good article on Meinong in the Stanford. Uh, and uh, I, I recommend that to anyone who's actually interested in Meinong and not the caricature that you find in Quine. Quine, you know, Quine's paper, you know, uh, starts by a kind of a, a gross characterization, caricaturization of, of Meinong uh, uh, and other strange people. I don't know that um, Quine ever read Meinong. Hmm. Um, yeah, he... Russell certainly did. He took Russell, Russell took Meinong very seriously. Yeah, Quine, in that paper, he has like a dialogue with an imaginary character named Mick mm. X or something like that. Mick yeah, X. is that Mick X and Wyman. Is that supposed yeah. to be I forget which, uh, Meinong? Uh, I forget which of those is supposed to be Meinong, uh, but neither is really Meinong. Okay. At I least mean, not a good faith character, character characterization. No, it's a it's it's a it's a pastiche constructed for rhetorical purposes. As I said, you know, uh, Quine is a very rhetorical writer, and you know, um, if you, there's a kind of um, a view that um, analytic philosophers don't use rhetoric, metaphor, um, yeah, this is not true. Just read Quine. Right. Did becoming a nunist alter your philosophy of mathematics? Because, I mean, yes. the whether mathematical objects exist has obviously been a, a huge and enduring yes. problem in the philosophy of mathematics. Where did you start out then, generally, before uh, nunism, and how did it uh, influence your beliefs? Yeah. Look, I've never liked the view that abstract objects exist. I mean, I, I actually have a fairly robust sense of reality. What exists is the things you can bang your head on, so to speak. You know. So it's, you're a physicalist uh, in some sense? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think existing objects are physical objects. They exist in space and time, or at least time, we might argue about space. Um, but certainly they, they exist in the causal chains. So I was never attracted to Platonism as a philosophy of mathematics. I was kind of a conventionalist and a kind of nominalist to the extent that I could get away with it. Uh, that That's where, where I started in the philosophy of mathematics. But um, once I became a nunist, I was quite happy to go with um, uh, Richard and a number of philosophers in the history of Western philosophy, like Thomas Reed, for example, and Scottish Enlightenment, uh, who held that these were simply non-existent objects. Um, you know, they're, they're outside the causal chain because they don't exist. But then, you know, if you're a Platonist about mathematics, you think that anyway. So there is a question of how you know about these things. But then, you know, if you're a Platonist about mathematics, do you think that? So, I mean, it doesn't dissolve all the problems in the philosophy of mathematics. Philosophy of mathematics is a very knotty area. But I found nunism much more congenial as an ontological story about mathematical entities, um, much more so than the kind of nominalism that I've been committed to before, which has all kinds of problems. Does nunism provide any sort of response to the Banasaroff field problem with cognitive access? Because it it, it um, seems like just tell me which just tell me which Banasaroff problem you have in mind because there's more than one. Right, uh, I'm not I'm not talking so much about how our words refer because I don't think you would have a problem with words referring to non-existent objects, but. Sure. How we know about how we know about them because I know that Benassaraf used a somewhat outdated causal theory of knowledge in his seminal paper. Where I mean, I know about the cat because I can see the cat. There's a causal chain between mm -hmm. us, but there's still sort of a problem with how we might know something about uh, abstract objects like sets if there is no connection yeah. between them. And I'm wondering how nonism responds to that. Yeah. Well, let me answer that question in two parts. Um, firstly, our knowledge of mathematical objects. Um, uh, mathematical objects don't exist in isolation. They're always part of structures. Um, and our knowledge of these objects derives from our knowledge of the structures. And the structures can be taken to be characterized in certain ways. In modern mathematics, that's always done axiomatically and explicitly. But the axiomatic methodology is a, it, I mean, is a relatively recent aspect of mathematics. Um, nothing was characterized axiomatically except geometry until really Frege. Um, geometry or geometries, because we knew about non-Euclidean geometries. Um, but the first axiomatization of geometry is late 19th century, it's Dedekind. Um, so, um, at least before the end of the 19th century, the only mathematical structures which were characterized explicitly by axiom systems were geometric. But they were characterized, I think, implicitly in practices. You know, we, we have practices about, of reasoning about natural numbers, which characterize uh, the natural numbers implicitly. Okay, 
So our knowledge of mathematical objects goes via the, the structures of which they inhabit, which are determined explicitly or implicitly by characterizations of structures. Okay, so that's the first part of the answer. Second part of the answer is that there um, is a view that in a certain sense, let me come back to that, things have the properties they're characterized as having. So when you characterize a structure, for example, by an axiom system, um, then you're characterizing a bunch of objects which have their characterizing properties. You know, naught is less than all other objects, um, uh, doesn't have any successors, uh, it's a predecessor one, that kind of thing. That's the way, you, you know, you'd explain zero to someone. All right, so you know about mathematical objects because the structures are characterized in a certain way and objects have the properties they're characterized as having. Now, come back to this thought that objects have the properties they're characterized as having. This is sometimes called the characterization principle. And um, everybody believes the characterization principle in some form or other. You know, if you're Russell, um, existent things have the properties they're characterized as having. So, you know, the capital of Australia is indeed the capital of Australia because you're talking about an existent object. Um, Anonis thinks you can characterize non-existent things and they have their characterizing properties as well okay so everybody thinks that you can sometimes characterize things in such a way that the characterized objects have those properties um but nobody 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 can think that everything that's characterized in a certain way has the characterized properties i mean that way lies the ontological argument and lots of other things i mean there's a two line if you assume the characterization principle that something characterized in a certain way has its characterizing properties there's a two line proof of everything I'd love so to hear that. there's a question. oh okay right it's easier with a blackboard or a piece of paper but let me give it to you take any statement you like let's call it a um, and consider the condition um, that x equals x and a. So this is a condition. Uh, it has a free variable. Now let's define something, the thing, which is such that it's self-identical and a. So the x, or an x if you like, such that x is x and a. Now let's give this a name. Let's call it t. If that object has its characterizing properties, then t equals t and a, from which a follows. Okay, pretty quick. Okay. It's pretty quick. Um, so um, the problem is how to understand the characterization principle. Everybody holds that sometimes things that are characterized have the characterizing properties, and sometimes they don't. Okay. Now. How you understand this, if you're an honest, is probably the most interesting problem of nonism. I don't think there are serious problems of nonism about 
quantification, uh, identity. These, I mean, th these are just poor arguments. But there is a, a real question about how a nonist understands the characterization principle and different context. I mean, Milo never really resolved this in his own mind. He sort of had various ideas. Some of his students took them up, but nothing was really worked out. Well, they didn't have the tools of modern logic to work them out. Um, but there are something like three contemporary versions of nonism, and the main difference between them is how you understand how, 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 how you get to grips with the characterization principle. I mean, I have one view about this. Other nonists um, have different views. Um, I mean, I, I can talk about my view if you like. Please, but, please. Um, well, look. Um, at its simplest, it's this. If you characterize an object, then uh, the object has its characterizing properties, but not necessarily at this world. Uh, it may have its characterizing properties at um, other worlds. These worlds may be possible or impossible. So, you know, you can think of the Sherlock Holmes stories as characterizing a certain thing, which is a detective, lives in Baker Street, shoots cocaine, has incredible powers of... Um, observation and deduction. Um, there's no such person in this world. Sherlock Holmes doesn't exist. But Sherlock Holmes has, has those characterizing properties in the worlds that realize the Conan Doyle stories. Um, and of course, you can characterize objects such that they're impossible. You know, everyone's favorite is the round square, or a round square. Um, the round square has the properties of being round and square. In some worlds, not this one, uh, not even a possible world, in the impossible worlds. But, you know, um, we've um, found in the last 20 years lots of applications and important things about the impossible worlds. That's another story. We could talk about that if you want. Um, but uh, for my money, if you can characterize an object anywhere, any damn way you like, and it's going to have those properties, but not necessarily the actual world, although it may but at some world or other, possible or impossible. So is is there, in an important sense, an analog between uh, how we know about unicorns and how <laughs> we know about the number one? I mean, we know that unicorns have one horn. Yes. We know that one is idempotent and greater than zero. Yes. Okay. Yeah. No, I mean, the, the, there's a very close analogy between um, mathematics and fiction. Um, they're not exactly the same, um, but the similarities between them are much closer than you might think at first blush. We could go into those if you want to. Yeah, I'm actually oh, reading yeah. one of Hartree's, Hartree's books, Hartree Field's books sure. at the moment. I know that you sure. two are, are close, are, are friends, colleagues, so I'm yes. sure you have a lot to say on that. One thing, though, that... Well, uh, Hartree, Hartree's a fictionist. Right, right. You know, so, so there's, there's a modern view in the philosophy of mathematics um, that mathematical objects are, are, are fictional objects. Now, there's an understanding of how... There's a, there's a real question about how you understand fictional objects, and I don't think Hartree would be very sympathetic to the view that one should treat them as, fiction, as, as non-existent objects. Mm -hmm. But uh, it... I mean, it does. The, the fact that there is this view called mathematical fictionism does underline the thought that there are actually very close similarities between um, 
various accounts of mathematical objects and fictional objects. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions that I have about fictionalism and about uh, nonism, so we have this analog between unicorns and and the number one in that we know about them in some way, but there seems to be something different about the fiction of mathematical objects in that they're so useful and people across various cultures have stumbled upon them in a way that people across various cultures haven't all stumbled upon uh, Conan Doyle or Sherlock Holmes stories. And I wonder how the nunist, or if you even feel compelled to uh, justify or explain why some non-existent objects are so much more uh, useful or they press upon they press themselves upon us as yeah. being more more real maybe well um, I'm not going to give you more real sure. but I, I certainly take take your point that mathematical objects are or mathematical theories are off are very often useful, and I assume you have science in mind. Okay, so the, the the quick answer is that they're useful when they're useful because that's what they were designed for. Whereas fiction wasn't designed for that; it was designed to. Uh, okay, well, this is going to be contentious, but let's just say to amuse people. But often you learn a lot from fiction as well, so it's not simple amusement. But we can talk about aesthetics if you want. But let's 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 talk about more about mathematics. So, first of all, not all mathematics is useful. There are branches of mathematics which have absolutely no use in science. The theory of higher infinities, the theory of uh, surreal numbers, um, th these have no application in science as far as I'm aware. Um, some mathematical structures um, were introduced with no eye on application whatsoever, but were found to have an application later, such as theory of complex numbers, was found to have applications <coughs> in electricity theory. Group theory was a pure mathematical structure, had no applications before special theory of relativity, as far as I'm aware. Um, but certain mathematical theories were designed uh, with a kind of canonical application in mind, counting for natural numbers, measuring for geometry, um, theories of change for calculus. Um, so they were designed particularly on, that evolved and calculus was designed, uh, geometry and number theory kind of evolved. Um, but they were evolved for a particular canonical application and that's why they're useful. Um, and nowadays, mathematics and physics and other branches of science are very sophisticated. They, they look to see which bits of mathematics they can apply. And they'll apply different mathematics um, because they seem to give the right answers. Why is mathematics important in science? That it was is a kind of discovery. And several people have asked the question, asked the question of why mathematics. Um, is useful in science uh, and in some sense it seems to be a brute fact that our world is can be characterized in mathematical structures um, but then you know you might say well you know 
the, the real world has a structure and science is mathematics is the science of structures so you, you know you, you expect to be able to characterize the structure of reality with the appropriate mathematical structure um, so that that's sort of a, a wandering around a bit the thought that um, mathematics has was designed or a lot of mathematics was designed precisely for its applicability whereas fiction wasn't We've talked, uh, or you've mentioned structures a number of times. D am I remembering correctly? Did you say that knowledge of logical structures comes from knowledge of non-logical structures, or did I mishear you? Um, if I if I said that, I don't remember saying exactly that. Um, but if, since you raised the topic of logic. Um, Let's let's talk a little bit about logic. So there are many pure logical structures, um, and perhaps a good analogy is geometry. Okay, there are many pure geometries: Euclidean geometry, hyperbolic geometry, elliptic geometry, various Riemannian geometries, and so on and so forth. Um, and qua pure mathematical structures, they're all equally good. No one says, you know, well, Riemannian geometry, that's, you know, that's not, not right. It's just a, a cool, pure mathematical structure. And in the same way, there are lots of pure logical structures, you know, classical logical structures, intuitionist, relevant. And these are just pure mathematical structures. They're characterized by axiom systems or algebraic models or, you know, whatever you like. And qua pure mathematical structure, there's no sense in which one is right and one is wrong. But just as pure geometries have what you might call a canonical application, which is charting the spatial structure of the cosmos, so pure logics have what you might call a canonical application, which is analysing the validity of the arguments, which we all give in philosophy, in law, in mathematics, in history, whatever. And you can, just as you can take a pure geometry when applied for its canonic application as a theory of the structure of space, so you can take a pure logic when applied for its canonical application to be a theory of the validity of vernacular arguments. And just as there is a, there can be arguments about which pure geometry is the right geometry for its canonic application, you can ask which pure logical structure is is the right uh, logic for its its canonical applications and of course that that's a big argument that 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 features heavily in 20th century logic but actually not just 20th century logic there have been lots of arguments about that in the history of western logic and actually eastern logic the, the reason though that i was asking about whether you were saying that knowledge of logical structures comes from knowledge of non-logical structures was because I was I was thinking of Michael Resnick's version of structuralism in which mm -hmm. we gain knowledge of mathematical structures as opposed to um, objects because we somehow see or learn about their models or their patterns in the real world and that just 
seem to s somehow relate maybe to the characterization uh, principles you were talking about earlier. I mean, that's how we get the characteristics of um, mathematical structures. Well, as I've said, I, I think we learn about these structures via their characterizations, either explicit or implicit. Um, I'm not sure I quite agree with the thought that we learn about these things by recognizing the patterns in the real world, or actually you didn't say quite that. I forget exactly what you said, but it was looking at these pictures in the real world. I mean, you know, we know a lot about very large cardinal numbers. Right. And they just have no application to the, the, the physical. Right or the concrete, or the causal world whatsoever. Um, so we uh, uh, certainly our source of knowledge about these is not the causal world. Um, and I think in the end that's, that's true. I mean, our knowledge of pure mathematical structures derives from their characterization. What we learn from the causal world is which pure mathematical structures are the appropriate ones for applying in okay. physics economics, linguistics, logic, um, and that is, um, in some sense, um, one might need to be a bit careful about this a posteriori. Yeah, no, that, the, the, that's... Studying that, sorry, go no, I was going to say, I mean, that's, that's very oh. interesting, because if I've given anything, even approximating a a decent gist of what Michael Resnick is getting at it does seem like yes that doesn't that doesn't really allow for knowledge of large cardinals as your example yeah um i mean and quine in one of his later writings distinguishes between real mathematics mathematics and recreational mathematics you know large cardinals are pseudo coup you know this this is just sociologically Wacky. Yeah, well, there are finitists, though, who hold that view, like real mathematicians. Uh, not that Quine wasn't yeah, a real mathematician, uh, but I have Abraham Robinson in mind or Edward Nelson or. Yeah. Okay, Nelson, I'm not sure what you're referring to, but Robinson was no finitist. Abraham Robinson was a very serious finitist. But he invented non-standard analysis. I know, it was, it's quite perplexing. But he was a devout finitist. Well, philosophically, he might have been. Oh, yes, mathematically, yes, yes. Certainly. Yeah, he sort of explained um, uh, mathematics as a game. That's the analogy that he uses in his philosophical papers. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm sure he didn't take... His mathematical work to be a game, and we'd have been very pissed off if um, someone had said that um, infinitesimal, you know, non-standard analysis was simply a game like chess. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe it was. I don't know. I don't know enough about Robinson. Right. But yeah, um, Heim. Uh, most of the mathematicians I know are happy to engage heavily with infinite structures. Mm -hmm. Heim uh, was, was one of his students in Israel. Uh -huh. And he told Heim about his finitism, and then Heim put me onto some of his work. And so he has a, a paper called uh, Formalism 64, and he's where he's um, sort of building off of Hilbert's view, but he has a very explicit 
his very explicit thesis that he's trying to defend or that he defends is that all almost all of our mathematics is quite literally meaningless because the objects or the words in our theories don't actually refer to any objects. So he's very, very serious finitist. Well, I mean, obviously you know more about him qua philosopher than I do. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'd be inclined to distinguish between the work that mathematicians actually do and their philosophy of mathematics. Oh, yeah, definitely. And these are not the same. Yeah, because he, he says that... Oh, Girdle, for example. Right, Girdle. But he says that he's, I mean, a, basically he says he's a workweek Platonist. I mean, he... Yeah. yeah. But so one one last question on the the nunism. So if you're a physicalist in the sense that you believe the existent objects are the physical objects, why don't more physicalists identify as nunists? So what are some of the objections against the position that they're are non-existent objects because i mean i gather that this is still very much a minority view yeah look uh i don't you, you'd have to do an empirical survey okay. to That's discover fair. what the contemporary say of the profession um certainly minorianism used to be considered completely wacky my sense of the profession is that it's now changing. Um, but as I say, you'd have to do an empirical survey to determine that. Um, why, aren't physical, why aren't there more physicalists who have endorsed nunism? Um, because I suspect that some physicalists will subscribe to the thought that all objects are physical objects. Um, and that's not the nunist view, of course. The nunist view, or at least one version of it in mine, is that um, all objects that exist are physical objects. I mean, most physicalists. Yeah, no. Let me put. Let, let me not put words into a physicalist's mouth. They, they're big enough to speak for themselves. Okay. Sure. Okay. You mentioned, or well, we touched a bit on possible and impossible worlds when you were describing mm. your view of the characterization principle. And mm. possible worlds, they've, I mean, been important in a ton of different ways. I mean, modality, mm. causation, uh, physics, mm. maybe math. But mm. what are impossible worlds? And mm. how can we... Well, what are worlds? Sorry? What are worlds? Okay, yeah, let's start there. Well, as you know, that's a really contentious question. Yeah. I take it um, you're not a realist about them. If Not a Lewisian realist. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I mean. Uh, I, I think that one world is very real. That's the actual world. Right. I think all the others are non-existent objects. Um, but, okay, let, let's backtrack a second. Okay. So, in contemporary logic, philosophy of logic, possible worlds goes back to goes back to go back to the works of Saul Kripke, now sadly deceased, um, and they were technically very very useful. Um, 
and the early papers that have saw that they're nothing more than technical devices. But of course, they cry out for philosophical interpretation uh, and Saul himself, slightly later in naming necessity, gave his account of them or you know, partial account of them and lots of other people have given different accounts. And I'm not sure that there is a consensual view about the status of possible worlds. Again, um, you'd have to do some kind of empirical survey of the profession to determine whether there's consensus. I, I somehow don't think there is. Um, now, possible worlds turned out to be very useful. Um, first of all, in analysis and modality, but then in a lot, a lot of other areas too, with properties, meaning, and so on and so forth. But what we discovered maybe 20 or 30 years later, was that to do justice to the vast number of applications, possible worlds don't go far enough because um, some applications really seem to require impossible worlds. This is especially true once you start talking about hyper-intentional structures, such as uh, intentional structures with a T, um, but also in counterfactuals, we reason about impossible situations. You know, what the, suppose, suppose Hobbes had squared the circle. What would, would he have been a famous mathematician or become a famous clown? Okay, you know, the answer is obvious, right? So, uh, lots of the applications of possible worlds really cry out for impossible worlds. Um, and then there's a question of what exactly an impossible world is. Well, you know. Do, do they have the same status as possible worlds, or do they have a different status? There's a disagreement about that. Um, and partly that's going to turn on what you think the status of, of possible worlds is. But um, my own view is that pretty much any view about the status of possible worlds could be coupled with pretty much any view about the status of impossible worlds. I mean, uh, my view is kind of simple, that you know, they all have the same status, namely impossible non-existent objects, apart from the actual world. Um, so they do all have the same status. Okay, that, that starts to address some of your questions. Maybe not all of them, but let, you can explain. Well, let's say, how have impossible worlds been relevant to your, your work? I, I think you've, you've written about how they relate to imagination. Yeah, so look, I've employed them in a couple of areas. One is to do with intentionality uh, and fiction. Well, um, maybe, and fiction, maybe that's the same, maybe that's different. Um, so let, let's take intentionality proper. Um, People have beliefs, okay? Um, most people's beliefs are inconsistent. We know that. Um, so if you're trying to give a world's account of um, belief, say someone believes it if in all the accessible worlds, deontically, sorry, doxastically accessible worlds, uh, let me, let me, Rephrase that more carefully. X believes that A 
just if in every doxastically accessible world to X, A is true. So it's, it's like modality for possibility, but it's doxastic. Um, then uh, if people have inconsistent beliefs, then the, access, the, the, the doxastically accessible worlds are going to be contradictory worlds. And set dialethism aside, those for the moment, I mean, most people are going to think those are impossible worlds. So you need impossible worlds there. If you believe in a world's analysis of fiction, as did David Lewis, for example, then because they're impossible stories, even logically impossible stories, um, you're going to have to believe that there are impossible worlds. Um, and that's another application that I've made of impossible worlds. So that, that's one bunch of applications. Another application is in counterfactuals. Um, we reason about impossible situations frequently. Um, and if you think of a world's analysis of, of counterfactuals, the counterfactual is true is just if in all the worlds of a certain kind which realise the antecedent, the consequence is true. If the antecedent is impossible, you're going to have to consider impossible worlds. Uh, and, and I've written about that as well. So I guess those are two applications of impossible worlds, or maybe three, how depends how you count, that, that I've made in my work. Yeah, you've, you've gestured at this a bit, but what role does logic play in, in impossible worlds? Because it seems like you need a, a very different logic to account for a, a place where um, I don't know, 2 plus 2 equals 4 and it, and it doesn't equal 4 or circles could be square. Yeah, look, um, some people think there's more than one correct logic. Set that aside. Uh, let, I, I, I don't actually think that's true, but let's just bracket that. Let's suppose there's one correct logic. Then um, that logic is the logic of the actual world in just the way that there are many different possible physics, but there's one physics of the actual world. Can I cut you off? Does that does that even make sense to you to say that there's a logic of the actual world? Sure. Okay, it does. Why not? Because we use logic in various different ways. Uh, we use physics in various different ways. Okay, that that's that's. I guess I just I don't know what it would mean to say that there's one a correct logic for the world. Well, the world is all that is the case. Um, some things that are the case are statements in the form X flows from Y. So, you know, the true logic is uh, characterized by the true statements of the form X flows from Y. Okay. Um, okay. So, um, all right. Po the notion of possibility can mean many things, but just to make it clear, we're talking about logical possibility here. Um, uh, a possible world is one where the world has the same logic as the actual world. An impossible world is a world where the logic of the world is not the same as the actual world. And we know there are such worlds. Um, you ask any mathematician or logician who works on intuitionistic mathematics um, what the world, I mean, it sounds kind of pretentious, the structure that they're investigating has as a as an internal logic, and they, they know perfectly well what that is. Um, so we know how to come back to counterfactuals. We know how to evaluate counterfactuals of the form 
if intuitionistic logic were true, excluding middle would fail. That's true. Uh, or intu if intuitionistic logic were true, um, explosion would fail. That's false. Um, if you if you have a, a world's analysis of counterfactuals, you've got to look at worlds where intuitionistic logic holds. Okay, um, and we know what those worlds are like because we know what intuitionistic world structures are like. So, um, sure, um, we we know that there are going to be worlds that have different logics. Maybe there are worlds which are completely logically anarchic. Whatever that means. Uh, so, yeah, logic can vary from world to world just as physics can. Okay. Now, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask one last question about nothingness from this Anglo perspective, mm -hmm. and it's mm -hmm. a question I've seen papers about this with with a title somewhat like this. I've never actually read one, so I'm curious if you have anything to say about it, or, or maybe to explain what the what the debate is, but what is nothing and why is there something rather than nothing? I mean, I, I can sort of wrap my... No, those are two, sorry? Those are two different questions. Those are two okay. different questions. Um, first of all, the word nothing is ambiguous. It can be a noun phrase. It can be a quantifier phrase. Right? You're familiar with the use of nothing as a quantifier yeah. phrase because it's standard in logic. Mm -hmm. But it can also be a noun phrase. For example, suppose I say, um, Hegel and Heidegger wrote about nothing, but said different things about it, which is true. The it there is an anaphoric pronoun, which refers back to the noun phrase nothing. Okay. So, um, I have to look up anaphoric. Is, oh, it refers back to, right? Nothing. Yep. Yep, uh, yep, yep. Hegel and Heidegger wrote about nothing, but said different right. things about it. The it is a pronoun, which refers back to noun phrase. I knew the, nerd, um, the word anaphora just from literature, but I hadn't heard anaphoric. But it's very. I'm sure that you've used that a lot in dealing with like the liar paradox, things like that. Not much, but it's um, a nice word though. I, mean, I learned. I learned many it's things. Standard too. in linguistics, as far as okay. I understand it. Um, now, the, your second question, why is there something rather than nothing, uses the, phrase, the, the word nothing as a quantifier. Why is it the case that for some x, x is, or x exists, or x is, x is an object, or, you know, let, let's set the Quinean stuff aside. However you pause it, it's a quantifier. Um, I'm not sure I have a good answer to that question. It's a curious question. I mean, I think everybody can wrap wrap it wrap their head around it. Yeah. I mean, just trying um, to think about. I mean, I'm not being particularly philosophical here, but even just trying to think about what it would be like if there was nothing, I still seem to have some sort of conception of absolute space. At least, I mean, there is still a void uh, when I try to conceive yeah. of it. Yeah. Well, that's not what a world with nothing is like because it's got space in it. Mm -hmm. um, it seems to me entirely physically, no, entirely logically possible <laughs> that there could be a world with nothing existent in it. I suppose there would be nothing non-existent in it either, though, right? 
That I'm not so sure about. Yeah. Um, so are there non-existent objects in our world? Is that the locution you would use? Well, you know, uh, they're, they're things which you and I can refer to, quantify over, and so on. So, you know, if you're doing these things in terms of models, um, the domain of quantification contains non-existent things, yeah. Okay. Like Sherlock Holmes. We can refer to Sherlock Holmes, quantify over Sherlock Holmes. Um, uh, okay, so, but I'm not quite sure what to say about whether there could be a world with absolutely nothing in um yeah i've never made my mind up on that but anyway that that's one question you asked but the other question was about nothingness mm -hmm. which is quite different um nothingness is okay you might we might argue about how you characterize it I rather like a very logical characterization. We can talk about that if you like. But as a first cut, you can think of nothingness is what remains when you take every object away. I'm curious about why you append the ness there in this case, as opposed to uh, when you're treating it just as a quantifier. So why that's nothingness, whereas nothing is just there being no objects. Um, well, nothingness is just to hammer home the point that I'm using the noun phrase, not the quantifier. Okay, got it. I mean, you can use nothing as a noun phrase, but there, because there's a tendency for great confusion, because people confuse the quantifier and the noun phrase and make, even make jokes about it. I mean, there are lots of nice jokes in Lewis Carroll, which puns, which trade on this ambiguity. Right. I saw no one coming down the road as he, he's faster exactly. than me. Exactly. Um, so um, if you're talking about, if you're using the word nothing as a noun phrase, it refers to the thing which is what remains after everything is removed. Now, okay, there are lots of things you might ask about here. Does it? Does that noun phrase refer to anything? Um, that's a subject we can talk about. Um, are there more precise ways of characterizing it? That's what we can talk about. Um, but that's that's what I mean. Okay, and if you follow me this far, which you may not want to do, that's fine. Um, it's going to be a very paradoxical object because it's something, for all I've referred to it, um, but by definition, nothing is no thing. So I'm using nothing as the noun phrase and then the quantifier, no thing. Okay? And nothing is no thing because it's what removes when everything is removed. So nothing is something and no thing, nothing. I have a question, I think, related to nothingness that I'm sure you're the person to help me with. And I, oh. I tried to read a bit of uh, Nishida on nothingness, but he was one of those philosophers that I found, I it was a while ago, very impenetrable. And I could, it was a stylistic thing that I, I couldn't get past. So 
Yeah, you're right. He he's one of the most impenetrable philosophers I know. Um, so who was he? he? Who was he? And oh, what did he have to say about nothingness? But I I, I shouldn't have cut you off. I need to work on that. Okay. Um, I struggle with Nishida, uh, even even more than I struggle with Hegel. Some of the philosophers later in the Kyoto School are much easier to read. Okay, but that's jumping ahead of myself. Nishida as a philosopher, um, he was born in about 1880, died in about 1945, worked for a lot of his life at Kyoto University. Um was really the first Japanese philosopher who tried to meld indigenous Japanese philosophy with philosophy from the West. Indigenous being like um, Zen? Well, let's say Buddhist. Okay. Mainly Zen. He was a Zen practitioner. But uh, he and certainly later Kyoto school philosophers had other schools of Buddhism in their targets as well. But he drew heavily on Zen. Um, but he was also reading uh, a lot of European philosophers, like Hegel, like Kant, like James, like Bergson. Um, and he was the first Japanese philosopher to try to make sense of ideas from both of these traditions. Um, and several people followed him in this tradition, like Tanabe and Nishitani, uh, and so these philosophers and several others collectively became known as the, the Kyoto School. And one thing that holds the school together is the use of this notion of absolute nothingness or in Japanese that time you move. Do you, do you speak Japanese? Uh, unfortunately, no. That'd be a very cool language to learn. Uh, I, I speak one language very badly. Yeah, that's how I like to answer <laughs> that question, too. I'm just, one is enough um, working on it. One is hard enough. Um, I wish I spoke more, but you know, uh, I don't. Uh, so to understand this, you really have to understand Zen, or at least something about Zen. So where do we start? <laughs> um In all forms of Buddhism, there is a distinction between conventional reality and ultimate reality. Conventional reality is pretty standard. It's our Lebensfeld, our phenomenological world. Absolute reality, ultimate reality is, well, there's a lot more disagreement amongst Buddhist philosophers as to what that Something is. Something like the noumena? No. Okay. Well, as a first approximation, yes, but no, there is very significant differences. Um, but in Zen, it turns out that ultimate reality is completely ineffable. Um, ineffable just being used in our everyday way that we just lack yeah, the words to describe it. We... Yeah, it's in principle impossible to say anything about it. Okay. Is it, is it impossible to say anything about because our words just it can't hmm. attach to they can't refer to anything about it or is it more in an epistemological sense we just don't know anything about it the first of those the first. okay 
Um, so, um, in Sanskrit philosophy, this is often referred to as shunyata, emptiness. Um, when that, when Buddhism goes into Japan uh, and China, uh, the, the Chinese Japanese character is is uh, well is a character in Chinese and Japanese. The Japanese pronunciation is ku. Um, means can mean sky, um, uh, but it means roughly nothingness. Um, but there's also this term mu, which is also in Zen used for nothingness, and, and that's the term that Nishida uses mu. Um, so um, Buddhism operates with this notion of nothingness, which is really uh, an epithet for ultimate reality. And you can't say anything about it. And isn't that saying something about it? Yes, of course it is. So there's paradox lurking here. But, you know, we've already talked about the paradox of nothingness. All right. So Mishra draws on this bit of Zen and tries to make, tries to integrate this into what he's learning about Kant and Hegel. Um, and it's not via the notion of noumenon, okay? Um, but Nishida has kind of various domains of reality. Um, so in like just the, the conventional and then the ultimate? It's broader than that in Nishida. Uh, let, let me try to think of a, a nice simple way of putting this like into too much detail. Um, let, let me give you an example. Um, suppose you think about coloured objects, right? Um, that they have a domain of some kind. Um, but the colours themselves are not members of that domain. They're properties of things in the domain. Okay. So, um, colour is relatively nothing. So it's something mm, I like that. which is is outside of the domain of the things that have the properties. So Nishida has this hierarchy of domains. He calls them bashal, um, sometimes translated as place or locus. That's a word um, that no, he Japanese uses a lot, basho. It, uh, he used it a lot in the middle period. Okay, it just means place in Japanese. Um, so locus is not a bad translation. So they're relative nothingnesses. So um, hmm. the um, so the domain of physical or coloured objects uh, would be a bashal, and um, colour is something that's outside that domain. So it's a relative relative to that domain. It's nothing. It just means it's outside that domain, and. Nishida's bashals are have this kind of embedded structure. You know, you can think of sets within sets, subsets and subsets. And there is a biggest bashal, which is the thing which contains all objects of any kind. Is it the ultimate reality? Uh, yes. Okay. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Now, this is where he draws on the Zen thought. Um, and um, it's it's... Ultimate reality, Zetai Mu, 
absolute reality because there's nothing bigger. Uh, it contains everything. Uh, and um, what makes it absolute is that there's absolutely nothing outside it. It's the ultimate. Um, so there are various relative nothingnesses, but then there's this absolute nothing. And so th this is, in some sense, the ground of every object, because um, every object is an object precisely because it resides in this basal. Um, and it's ineffable, because if you could characterize it, there had to be something that stands outside the basal to characterize it. And there is no such thing. In so the same it, way that the, very the color properties characterize the original objects? Exactly, exactly. Oh, that's very neat. Okay. So um, this is a very strange idea. And if you're not, un if you don't understand where it's coming from in Zen thinking, it's a very, it, it's a very, very odd idea indeed. But if you think of the context he's drawing from, it's a little bit more intelligible. Um, I don't know if that helps. It does help. I'm curious about what what draws you to this philosophy. Is it just a general interest? I mean, particularly just referring to nothingness. Is it just a general interest in learning or is there something particularly appealing about this conception of nothingness to you um i'm not sure that i'm particularly attracted to this philosophy i mean i'm attracted to understanding many different philosophers and i struggle to understand them uh, but with great philosophers it's always rewarding because you get something out of it um i wouldn't stand up for Nishida any more than I'd stand up for Heidegger or Kripke um, or Kant or Hegel or Plato. I mean, I think there are things that are great value oh, yeah, in all these too. works. Yeah, Plato. <laughs> um, so I, I, I just try to understand different philosophers and take what I can of value out of them. Why do I, but you know, why am I interested in nothingness? Because it strikes me as it's a paradoxical notion, uh, which has been really not thought through properly in Western philosophy or maybe even Eastern philosophy because they don't have the tools of modern logic to handle it. But you know, I, I've always found paradox interesting. A lot of my work has been on various kinds of paradox, and over the last five or six years, I guess I've been interested in nothing because. It strikes me as a very paradoxical notion, um, which can be handled with the techniques of contemporary logic. Now, what are its metaphysical ramifications? Well, that's something I'm still thinking about. Hmm. Well, correct me if I'm wrong here about Mainong, but I'm just going to use him as an example. But I think of uh, maybe Mainong's conception of non-existent objects as one example, is more of an intellectual exercise, an attempt to sort of understand the world. But I tend to think of Eastern philosophy, granted my limited knowledge of it, as being more of a lifestyle or meant to, I guess maybe this is redundant, to be lived with. And I am wondering if this if Nishida's philosophy of nothingness was really meant to have some sort of practical applicability or 
uh, to influence the way that you perceive the world and more than just uh, like an, oh, that's interesting intellectual sort of sense. Oh, I think that's certainly true. Oh, yeah. I mean, Tell a lot me of places Ransom's by Nishida is, is on religion. And and um, Nishitani, one of his successors, makes a lot of religion. Um, look, um, I think it's true that nearly all the Eastern philosophical traditions have some kind of religious entanglement or maybe religion is the wrong word, entanglement about how to live. So I wasn't totally off the mark. No, 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 I think that's right. Um, but then just think how much Western philosophy is of this kind. Uh, obviously, medieval philosophy is like that because it's entangled with Christianity. But so is much Hellenic philosophy, sepsism, stoicism. Um, so is Plato, big time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, one thing about Western philosophy, which has never really happened in the East, is that around the scientific revolution, there's a break where philosophy and religion become disentangled. Um, not entirely, but um, philosophy makes its own way. Um, and that, I don't think, happened in the, in the East. Now, you might hear this in two ways. You might think that philosophy in the West lost something terribly important when it made this break, because we don't now in the West talk much about probably the biggest practical philosophical problem of all, how to live. Um, I mean, this, this drives so much philosophy um, before the scientific revolution. Um, and you can think of Eastern philosophy as having retained that central question. Okay, so in that way, you might think of it as a loss. Um, you might think of it as, again as well, because we've uh, the break from religion has allowed us to engage in philosophical issues in a kind of much more freewheeling way than we did before. We're not Western philosophy is not tied to any religious picture. And I think some of the Kyoto philosophers did think of philosophy as not essentially tied to religion, but they were very interested in religion as well. But, uh, I mean, to come back to your point, your, your general point is right. I mean, the, the, in the Kyoto school uh, and the other Asian traditions that I know, um, there isn't this sort of radical break between religion and philosophy that uh, the West made in, around the turn of the scientific revolution. A, another group of philosophers, that uh, of non-Western philosophers that I know did work on nothingness were or nothingness adjacent uh, topics were the the nyaya or the nyaya i guess my is that is that the, the correct one look i i can't pronounce sanskrit okay. uh, but I, I think the pronunciation nyaya okay yeah i i got um pakistani food the other day and my friend was making fun of me for saying i'd, I'd like some nan and a lassie with my uh, mid my midwestern accent but so what did the 
Nyaya have to say about absences? Well, or well, I guess okay. maybe we should start with it, like we do with Nishida. Who who are they? Who were they? Okay. So, um, in India, um, the Orthodox Indian philosophy is, is Hinduism, um, which has roots um, in literature, Vedic literature, which go back beyond a thousand BC. But around the turn of the common era, you get the development of a number of different schools of Hindu thought. Um, And it would be wrong to think of these as kind of like Protestants and Catholics. It's not that. It's just more that. Um, the, the, the schools do disagree with each other on certain things, but they, they all pick up one aspect of Vedic thought and kind of work on it, articulate it, theorize it. Okay. <clears throat> and the Nyaya were one of these schools. There are six um, Orthodox Hindu schools, although often they're thought of as coming in pairs for reasons we can go into if you like. Um, the Nyaya were the epistemologists. Um, so they're interested in logic, in reasoning, epistemology, metaphysics to the certain to the extent that that gets engaged in epistemology. Um, Nothingness, and they're often coupled with another school of Hindu thought uh, called Vaisheshika, uh, who are more interested in metaphysical questions. And often th- those two philosophers, Nyaya and Vaisheshika, are paired together. Okay, so. Um, one thing that these two schools do is have a bunch of categories and these are categories in the same sense that aristotle has a bunch of categories okay so you look at aristotle's categories they're things like substance place time okay i don't know all the others i've forgotten them but they're 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 the categories of the things in reality and the nyaya by shake had a bunch of categories some of them are similar to aristotle some are different but one of them that the, the Nyaya have, especially in later Nyaya thinking, is absences. So um, they have, they, they take absences to be part of reality. Um, and they have a sophisticated theory of absences, um, a, a categorization of different kinds of absences. Um, nothingness is, of course, if it's anything at all, is the biggest absence of all. And I'm not sure that they talk much about nothingness, um, but they had a, a categorization of other kinds of absences. To say that absences are, I don't know what word you used, but it was something, I don't, did you say that absences exist? That they hold that absences exist? I said they're part of the world. Part of the world. And are they, in, in the Nyaya philosophy, existent objects? I, I suppose obviously you have to impose our uh, our vocabulary or diction onto them to make that distinction, but I think that there are some contemporary philosophy of philosophies of mathematics, like maybe it's uh I don't think it's Jaquinto himself, but I think somebody named Neil Barton who wrote on the on zero uh, a realist account of zero that we like literally see absences and was it Ferenikova? I, I might have her name wrong but we 
literally we literally hear absences when we're listening to music and there's a pause or something to that yeah effect. that that's certainly true um i mean that absences are built into the nyaya account of perception you can see absences hear absences um did they think that absences exist um Oh gosh, that I don't know because I'm not sure what the Sanskrit word for is for existence is, and I don't know enough about Nyaya philosophy to know whether they would call it absences existent. Um, you'd have to ask uh, a Nyaya scholar about that. And you did say that I could ask you more about this, which was you said the Hindu schools come in pairs, and my first thought mm. is that. Um, that just seems like a, a natural way of balancing things out. You have uh, one school and then their their opponent, and then as they battle it out, their ideas get refined. Is that why there were always two schools? No, no. Um, they, they, they're often classed in pairs because they had different interests, um, but sort of complementary interests, which go well together. So the Nyaya were epistemologists, Vaisheshaka were more metaphysicians, but the, the, the two mate together nicely. Um, and the same is true as the other pairs. I mean, um, I mean, you can go into that if you like, but that, that's the answer. Okay. Okay. We, we first, we started off um, this conversation. I asked you about, I mean, you worked in so many things, how you came to accrue those interests and something that you said just a few minutes ago that the biggest question in philosophy has historically been how to live but i but you weren't really getting that in contemporary again i'll use scare quotes analytic philosophy is that one of the reasons that you turned to non-western philosophy because you wanted no. oh it's not no. okay no Look, I didn't say it was the biggest philosophical question. I, if I did, you know, um, uh, I didn't mean to say exactly that. Um, it, it's a f one of the most important philosophical questions um, because it's one that concerns everybody, whether they think about it much or not. Um, and certainly philosophers in the West don't think much about it nowadays. Yeah, I haven't. But everybody... I was going to say that I haven't been, at least not consciously, it amazes me that I haven't been thinking about it until relatively recently. I was just sort of like going about my life, but just within the fa past couple of years, maybe because of lots of therapy and realizing I was unhappy with a lot of things that I was doing, I've been thinking a lot more about um, how how to live my life. Yeah, well, I, um, I don't mean to sound condescending, but I think it's a part of growing up. No, yeah. that's not condescending. Um, but we all have to make we all have to make choices. You know, what should I do with my money? What should I do as a profession? Um, who should I vote for? Um, we all worry about these questions, um, and whether you what you sort of thematize them as a philosophy. They are philosophy. Um, 
you know, sort of aspects of ethics, political philosophy. But you know, the, the general question is, how should you live? Um, and we we all think about these things. Um, and some philosophical traditions theorise them, theorise them explicitly. But for all of us, the question of how should I live plays an important role in our thinking consciously or subconsciously sometimes. Um, okay, but your question was, did I turn to Eastern philosophy for that? And the answer is no. Um, let me tell you how I got involved in Eastern philosophy. So I've been a professional philosopher for about 20, 20 and a bit years, and I knew nothing about Asian philosophy. Um, wasn't that I was against it, I just wasn't on my horizon. And then I met a philosopher who's now a very old friend, Jay Garfield, who knew a lot more about this stuff than I do and still does. Um, and I just finished um, writing my book, Beyond the Limits of Thought, and he just finished his translation of Mulam Karaka, which is probably the most important philosophical Buddhist text after the works of the Buddha. And talking to Jay, uh, I just realised that we had so many interests in common, and he had Buddhist perspective on these things that I didn't have, and I had logical ways of handling these things that he didn't have and so um, I just I, I just realized that there were so many rich traditions in philosophy that I knew nothing about and I determined to make a point of teaching myself some things about them um, but for a long time I was interested more in the metaphysics and the ethics the ethics is a, a more recent interest i guess i was talking to justin clark doan of columbia and i was very interested surprised pleased to hear that his first interest in philosophy was actually indian philosophy and indian metaphysics but it was only really because it's kind of hard to get a job in that that he focused more on on the logic side to begin with but he said jokingly that now that he has tenure he's going to devote a lot more time to that, which is pretty cool. Well, I'm very pleased to hear that. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's true that, you know, Western philosophy has almost entirely ignored the Asian traditions. Um, there are exceptions, like Schopenhauer, like Hegel, maybe Leibniz. Um, but generally speaking, certainly in the modern Anglo profession, probably the modern Western profession, uh, no attention has been paid to it. In fact, it, it's, it was quite typical to find encyclopedias which said the Asian traditions aren't philosophy at all. They're religion, they're uh, wise men pronouncements, they're oracular, they're spiritual. Um, look, they, they do have those dimensions, so does a lot of Western philosophy. Um, but these pronouncements about the Asian traditions were held by people who had obviously never read the texts, because you cannot read the texts and not recognise that these people are engaged with philosophical questions that any Western philosopher will recognise. Okay. Um, what's the nature of the world? Um, how should I live? 
Is there a God? Um, how should you reason? How do you know any of these things? Uh, and these guys are often have very sophisticated views. And, you know, if you read a lot of the Indian texts, they read like sort of many medieval Western texts, you know, thesis, objection, reply, counter-reply, objection, thesis, you know, explicitly structured like this, you know. Um, so these guys, you know, argue hard. Um, so these things are important philosophical traditions that the West has largely ignored. Um, if we want to teach just Western philosophy, we should call ourselves departments of Western philosophy, not pretend that we're doing philosophy about. Um, and I'm delighted to see that very slowly an awareness of the Western of the Eastern traditions is sort of slowly permeating into Western academia. Um, I think this is for many reasons, uh, but um, whatever the reasons, it's really good this is happening. And I look forward to the time, maybe in 20 or 30 years, where the Eastern canons play as much role in the West as this, with the Western canons. Yeah, one of the really wonderful things about having uh, a podcast is I get to talk to people at length. Uh, that I wouldn't so easily be able to get office hours with. But like next week, I'm going to be talking to Peter Adamson of the history of philosophy without any breaks. And we'll be able to talk about Islamic philosophy for the whole time. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, no, he's terrific on that. Yeah. And I was speaking to another philosopher, Barry Lamb, and we were talking about a metaphysical problem uh, that medieval philosophers were dealing with, which is, uh, reincarnation uh, problems, metaphysical problems with reincarnation, particularly related to cannibals, and oh. it, because if a cannibal eats yeah, yeah, somebody yeah. else, and part of their body becomes part of their body, uh, the cannibal's body, uh, then there's like not enough to be not enough to go around. You have like duplicates when everybody's resurrected, and I asked him about what why this problem was like so compelling to him to do a podcast on it when it seems so sort of silly to us now. Mm. And one, he put it very nicely in a way that I've been thinking a lot about since then. And he sort of thought of it as a, an exercise in world building where you're just trying to mm. tell like a consistent story and you don't have to view it about, view it as like a problem in our actual world, but you're trying to maybe sort out a possible world. And thinking about it in this way uh, makes all these other philosophies much more uh, fascinating to me. I can now see them as uh, puzzles in a way that maybe before I somewhat dismissively uh, thought of them as uh, being wrong or misguided or something like that. Yeah, I don't know the medieval debates you're talking about, but uh, I, I can I can sympathise with this picture. I mean, you know, if you look at the great philosophers, they all have a world picture. You know, Plato, Kant, Wittgenstein, who had two, Heidegger, Marx, um, Nagarjuna, Dogen. Uh, Uh, And you don't have to 
believe these pictures are true, but it's very rare that they don't have points of insight. And I think this is one of the things about a great philosopher. Actually, this is taking us back to the question of what makes a philosopher survive to be read in 300 years' time. Mm. I think one of the things that makes a great philosopher is that they do have these kind of profound points of insight which subsequent generations can go back to and find new things in all the time. How many times in the history of Western philosophy have we gone back to Plato? Um, and no, I mean, you know, Plato's view, you know, these abstract objects exist in this platonic realm, that's wacky, okay? So, you know, can space and time were in your head. Um, uh, Heidegger, life is a game of being, playing with us. So, you know, <laughs> all these are really wacky pictures, okay? But they're kind of fascinating. And I think we find them fascinating not simply for historical reasons, although that as well. But because... Even though these pictures are wacky, they have points of insight that we can learn from. So you don't have to be a Platonist to find points of insight in Plato, or Kantian to find points of insight in Kant, or Heideggerian to find points of insight in Heidegger, uh, and so on. Um, so actually, this relates to something else we talked about, fiction. Um, because fiction is not just telling stories, or at least, it, it, good fiction doesn't simply tell stories. It, it actually, you get points of insight about something, often humans, but maybe other things, political structures, depending on the context. Um, so the the act of this sort of world building that you find in acts of fiction does teach you, or at its best, can certainly teach you something about important philosophical issues. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think th the way you suggested looking at these things is actually quite interesting, significant. A few days ago, I spoke with Paul Woodruff um, at a classicist from UT Austin, and he was in the Vietnam War. And we mainly talked about philosophy of war because being in war, I, I, as you can imagine, tremendously impacted him and left him with a lot of sure. ethical questions. And he wrote a fair amount of fiction, I think novels and plays, and that helped him sort of come to grasp with what his beliefs were, and it helped him philosophize. Right. And I seem to recall that you wrote, I don't know how much fiction you've written, but I do remember that you wrote a story called Sylvan's Box. Mm. What exercise in world building, like what was that story? What was the exercise in world building there? And how did it relate to your philosophy? Um, Sylvan's Box is a story in which something impossible happens. Okay. Uh, and... The story centers around this impossibility. Okay. The origin of this story was as follows. Um, it went back to a discussion with David Lewis way back in... I don't know what it was. Oh, I suppose you would have known David Lewis. 
Yeah, very well. Oh, that's pretty I awesome. Mean, David, <laughs> David um, came to us and his wife, Steffi, came to Australia for a couple of months every year for 20 years or so. He loved Australian philosophy. Um, Australian philosophers loved him and Steffi. Um, you know, he had a very Australian way of doing philosophy. Um, robust, no, unpretentious, um, problem-driven, uh, open-minded but critical, you know. Okay, so, uh, yeah, so I knew David reasonably well. Um, and David at this time had been working on his fiction, his account of fiction, you know, uh, truth and fiction. And, uh, in the truth and fiction paper, uh, he does briefly consider what to say about inconsistent fictions, you know, like kind of in Conan Doyle, there's supposedly one part, one story where Watson had a war wound in his leg and another one where, he, where his war wound in his arm and so on, his shoulder. Um, and David's view was when you find this, you kind of break the story up into fragments and just, you know, um, pause the story as two consistent fragments. Uh, and we were talking about this, and I said, yeah, but then I don't believe that we must do this. Maybe we, that's the right way to, to, to treat the whole Sherlock Holmes story. But I reckon you could write a story which was essentially inconsistent. To break it up into fragments would just be to get it wrong. And David was sceptical. So uh, I said about putting my money where my mouth was and, and wrote the story. And... I think um, David, honest broker that he was, agreed. So what what was the actual story? Hmm. Or if you don't want, if you don't want to give it away, that's all right too. Okay, look, I, what I'm what I'm going to say at this point is just Google it. You'll find all sorts of copies, easy to find. It's only a ten page story. Okay, um, rather than spill the beans i i yeah totally fine right so many interested readers listeners please go read it sure sure now i back to that uh perhaps not the most important question but one of the big questions uh, how to live one's life uh, is selfishly for me though i'm sure i mean it's not just me but how does Zen philosophy in general help guide one in their life? And I'm wondering, is there a slogan to Zen philosophy in the sense that I think that, I mean, you might epitomize Christianity with turn the other cheek, but then, I mean, you obviously can't epitomize uh, analytic philosophy with a slogan. Maybe maybe one of Quine's would, would be fitting to some extent, but... But what is, I mean, the general gist or motivation behind Zen? Okay, look, remember that I'm not a Buddhist of any kind. Okay, I was going to ask generally. that too, so. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not a Buddhist. I have, no, I'm a, I have no religion. Actually, philosophy is my religion, if you like. Um But I suppose, I mean, in the same way that you said that 
you can take things from Heidegger or Nishida or Kant. I mean, you've still probably taken things from Buddhism. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, you know, core Buddhism is um, laid out by the Buddha in his first sermon. Uh, and roughly speaking, it's, you know, life's characterized by unhappy things that happen to you and everybody. Um, but there's something you can do to make it better. Let me tell you how. When, rough, no, when was that sermon from about? Um, the, it's immediately after the Buddha achieves enlightenment, at least historically, uh, that's the legend. Uh, and it's no, no one knows the exact dates of Siddhartha Gautama, but it's around about 500 BCE. Okay, so it's it's newer, but not much newer than the Hindu traditions we were talking about, with it, which I think you said were yes. 1000 BCE. Yes, so around 500 BCE, um, a number of Indian philosophical traditions break away from orthodoxy. Buddhism was one, Jainism was another, Charavaka the materialist was another. Uh, so these are thought of as the uh, heterodox schools of Indian philosophy, the, the Hindu ones being the orthodox schools. Um, but anyway, you know, what the Buddha gives in his first sermon is an analysis of the human condition. Um, everyone gets old, everyone gets ill, everyone, things happen to everyone they don't like, um, sometimes really don't like, um, you know, and that, that that's sometimes called the first noble truth, and it, it's pretty obvious when you think about it. But... Um, then the philosophy goes on. Yeah, well, one reason we get upset by all these things is because we misunderstand the world in which we live, who we are, what the world is like. Um, so one thing you, one very important thing is to get your head around how the world works. And then a lot of Buddhist philosophy is like that. And then how the world works is subject to a great deal of philosophical analysis in the next two and a half thousand years by Buddhist philosophers. And um, Zen has some very particular takes on this. Um, and I'm not going to try and summarize it in a, in a catchy phrase. I don't think that's possible. Yeah. But one thing that Zen emphasizes um, perhaps more than any other Buddhist school is that one thing that causes the suffering we experience is the fact that we're always we're not living in the present we're worried about the future or concerned with the past all the time, whereas um, where the action of life is is really the present. So, is there anything like a proof of this that's offered in Buddhist philosophy, or is it just something that uh, you're supposed to take as self-evident, or something you're supposed to have gathered from your own experience? Right. Um, look, there, there, there are lots of moving parts of Buddhism. Um, the, the first noble truth that 
life is, you know, there are always going to be events of suffering, I think is pretty much common sense. Um, the analysis of how the world works, uh, I don't think is common sense. I think a lot of it is very uncommonsensical. Um, and you know, philosophers come up with these. Um, and of course, the arguments they come up with depend upon how they articulate the analysis of what reality is like. So there, uh, you know, there, there are lots of philosophical arguments in the Buddhist traditions. Buddhists arguing against non-Buddhist schools like Hindu schools. Buddhist different Buddhist schools arguing about each other. Um, so, uh, I mean, even way back uh, in the the Buddhist sutras, you know, the supposed stories uh, of the life of Buddha. He says, uh, you know, don't believe something simply because you find it in a book or some bright bastard tells you or, you know, your priest or your parents tell you or think about it for yourself. Um, see if, if it stands up to reason for you. Um, so right back in the origins of Buddhism, there's the thought that um, you, you don't take things simply as a matter of faith. It's got to stand up to reason for you. Maybe this distinguishes it from many religions, certainly theistic religions. Um, but certainly it's a feature of Buddhism. I'm, I am sort of struggling to see how this all relates, the idea of living in the present, how it relates to Nishida on nothingness. Uh -huh. um, okay, that, that's a complex question, and I'm not sure I've got enough grip on Nishida to give you a good answer to that. But let me put it this way. Ultimate reality is... Okay, to understand reality, you have to understand ultimate reality and not just the phenomenal world that's overlaid on it. Um, and that is nothingness, um, an ineffable reality. And um, supposedly, it's an experience of that you get from your enlightenment experience, satori. Um, and the relationship between that and time is a very difficult philosophical question. But one way you might think about it is that um, time, the past and the future is a kind of conceptual construction that we put on our experiences, um, but it's not really part of ultimate reality. You know, think about Kant if it helps, you know, that time is in the mind of the beholder. It's not quite that, but, you know, it's a first approximation. So um, if you're worried about these um, conceptual constructions all the time, you're not worrying about what reality, or what, what's really there. Um, I don't know that 
I don't know if I can do much better at the moment to, to address your concerns. That's fine. It seems to, to me like this emphasis on nothingness is somehow related maybe to nihilism and can lead one to sort of let go of the suffering if you realize that it's all part of part of nothingness. I, I, yeah, I don't have a yeah. sophisticated response. No, well, the word nihilism is curious. I mean, it's, it means many different things. And certainly some of the Kyoto schools made a big deal of it. But the main thought is that once you understand what reality is like, you do let go. So another part of the the, the first sermon is that um, what was really upsetting about the things that happened to us in reality is the kind of grasping, the the, the okay, the non-letting go that we is part of our normal thinking. Um, and when you see things as they really are, it can be conducive to letting go. I mean, you know, so Zen is a form of Buddhism, and that's a connection that makes with very traditional Buddhist views. I think that you can, again, tell me if I'm wrong, but this discussion about the levels of reality probably qualifies as metaphysics. But, sure. okay, but in the... In the same way that the Nyaya had a sophisticated, I mean, a philosophy of mind, maybe a philosophy of language, I get the sense that Zen also deals in the philosophy of mind and the philosophy of language. Yep, and absolutely. So what are, what are some of the philosophy of mind questions? I imagine that some of them are epistemological in, in the sort of dealing with the relation between the mind and the nothingness. But what are some of the other ones? Well, look, virtually every question that you're familiar with in Western philosophy of mind. Like consciousness. In sure, absolutely. And I'm sure that there's not a, a singular account because you mentioned that there are lots of moving parts. But what might be a way in which a Buddhist philosopher, I mean, Nishida perhaps, addresses consciousness? Well, look, there are many schools of Buddhist philosophy and they disagree with each other big time about many things, including the nature and the role of consciousness. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um But Nishida, often understands absolute reality or Zetamu, absolute nothingness, as the fundamental consciousness. So sometimes oh, really? in the Buddhist tradition, it's called Buddha nature. So it, it is the stuff of reality. Um, so it's sort of panpsychism. Yeah, except let's just say pan. Okay. Because it's uh, 
it's the stuff of which you are aware when you have it, when you experience reality. But in the experience of reality, the subject-object distinction disappears. So it would be wrong to say it's the mind. The mind also disappears. And then with regard to philosophy of language, I mean, a lot of a lot of the philosophy of mind questions I think of as really occurring quite naturally, like what is consciousness? What is a representation? What am I representing? Well, maybe that that's less of a natural question. But I think of the questions in philosophy of language as being uh, more recent and more specialized. Well, that, that's true. Um, I mean, as, as I'm sure you know, uh, philosophy in the West is often said to make a linguistic turn. Right, around Austin? No, no, at the start of the 20th century. Okay. So, you know, Frege, Husserl, okay. um, uh, and so many philosophers after that are concerned with language. You know, whether it's uh, Derrida or Foucault or Quine or Carnap or you, you name it. Um, so I'm not talking about ordinary language philosophy. That's just one you know, way in which people have um, focused on language. But so much of language in the 20th, of philosophy in the 20th century concerns language. Um, maybe we're coming out the other side of that now. It's not that we think the language is unimportant, but we've thought that it's not the be-all and end-all of everything. Um, I don't know that Eastern philosophy, philosophy has ever made the linguistic term. Um, sorry, I don't think I've answered your question. I'm not sure you asked a question. You put me back on track. Yeah, my question, I what I was leading, to, what I was leading toward at least was, what are some of the central questions in the Buddhist philosophy of language? Granted that they didn't make this linguistic turn. I mean, we pointed to one thing, or I pointed to one thing, which was uh, when we were speaking about ineffability, I mean, how our words can refer to this absolute nothingness, which they can't. But what are some of the other issues? Well, there are several issues in the philosophy of language that arise in the Buddhist tradition. Um, one is the question of the relationship between language and reality. Um, to what extent is reality linguistically determined, or to what extent is our experience of reality linguistically determined? That's important. What does that mean? Another question that our our world is linguistically determined. Well, I, I the the first thing that comes to my mind is, I don't know if it. I think that there's some other name involved, but maybe like the wharf hypothesis, something like that. Where, I mean, the the story is that when the colonists landed in South America, the uh, indigenous people didn't have a word for ships like that. So they, they saw people as uh, riding on clouds when they 
uh, arrived on the shore. Yeah. And in that sense, I can see how the world would be linguistically determined. Let's 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 not go into the wolf hypothesis because that's a bit of a mess. But just think of it this way: um, the social world, at least, is clearly conceptually constructed. Okay, what's a country? What's money? What's a philosophy professor? These, these notions are heavily conceptually dependent, okay? And concepts and language may not be exactly the same thing, but um, it seems difficult to see how you could have concepts like money or a country or, or Congress or president without language, okay? Um, and I don't think it's sort of uh, very contentious that our social reality is heavily conceptually constructed. No, no, that's a very nice way of putting it for me. Um, so the question is, how much of reality is conceptually constructed? And that's something that Buddhist schools disagree about. Okay, that's one way that language features. Another way that features is this. Um, generally speaking, Buddhists are um, nominalists about universals. So they don't believe in abstract objects. I mean, again, they're they're very common sense, very common sense people. What exists is what's in the causal flux. Right, and well, I mean, um, going back to Nishida, I mean, there you have the objects in your domain, and then you have your properties, but they're nothing. So yeah, that's yeah. I can see the um, nominalism there. But, but all of Buddhism is is is, is nominalist. Okay, so you have a, a question of. How you understand language, which at least prima facie appears to refer to universals. How does that work? Um, and there's a big discussion of that. Um, then there's a question of how you should understand the relation of language to the ineffable, if there is an ineffable. Um, So that's something that's been taken up by Buddhist um, commentators in the last, I guess, 60 or 70 years. Um, in the Zen tradition, do you have to think of language as performative or, or paradoxical? Or um, So that, that, that's three, okay. Um, and some of those, I guess, are familiar to the West, at least the first two. Mm -hmm. Now, those two, uh, talking about the philosophy of mind and the philosophy of language at least, those two topics don't clearly to me at least relate to how we should live our life, but clearly um, ethics does. And we haven't talked at all about Buddhist ethics. And how do Buddhist ethics differ from Western ethics? Maybe that's a good way of explaining what Buddhist ethics are. But again, I'll, I'll add the caveat that I understand that when I say uh, Buddhist ethics, that's quite referentially vague since there are all mm. these different philosophers. Yeah. Look, um, it, it's true that um, many of the things we've been talking about um, are not centrally relevant to ethics. I mean, this comes back to the, the thought that when you start to do philosophy, you start off in one area, and then you get driven to different areas because of interconnections. 
and then different areas. So um, it's not as though everything is going to be centrally relevant to every aspect of philosophy, but the connections are there and they're there. They're in ethics. Um, in all traditions, you know, scratch any ethics and you'll find the metaphysics underneath, whether it's Kant or Aristotle or, or um, Nagarjuna. Um, so what is Buddhist ethics compared with Western ethics? Well, look, for a start, there's no such thing as Western ethics. Okay? There are many Western ethics. Is, yeah. Um, Kant is not Peter Singer. It's not Aquinas. Sure. Um, so, um, there are many different ethical traditions in the West. Mm-hmm. Um, Buddhist ethics is pretty variegated, um, but it, it has a certain unity. Um, well, I guess, though, just before you continue, when I say Western ethics and... I guess I have implicitly in mind Judeo-Christian ethics, which are themselves also not uh, uniquely specified. Uh, but I, I wasn't particularly referring to the Western philosophers, so maybe that was ambiguous. Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly lots of significant Western philosophers have not been Christians. Right, certainly. Like Peter Singer, or actually, I don't know what whether Rawls is a Christian or not, but you know, um, Marx certainly wasn't. Um, Kant certainly was a Christian, um, and there are very clearly Christian aspects to his philosophy. I'm not sure that his ethics is something that a non-Christian could not subscribe to. Um, but but anyway, I mean, we, we can agree that there are many different uh, ethical systems in the West. Um, and as I say, you know, that there is disagreement amongst Buddhist philosophers on ethics, ethical issues, but there is a certain commonality. Um, one thing that most Buddhist ethicists will agree on is that most of us don't like okay the sanskrit word is dukkha usual translation is suffering but that's far too narrow it's it's the things in life that you really don't like you know physical pain mental pain we can agree that we don't like those and and the first noble truth is you know that's a recurrent feature of life um and uh life would be better without it and uh Ethics is about those things you can do to make life better in this world. And there's a bunch of concrete suggestions as how you go about that. So that's one thing that all Buddhist traditions will agree on. And another is that that might make it sound terribly selfish. You're only concerned with yourself. Um, but that thought could not be further from the truth. Because in the end... Um, Getting rid of your suffering is part of the much bigger project of getting rid of other people's suffering too. So, a central Buddhist virtue, especially in Buddhism after about the turn of the common era, is again the Sanskrit term is karuna, usually translated as compassion. But the thought is that um, 
getting rid of your suffering and getting rid of other people's suffering uh, go together for various philosophical reasons we could talk about. But um, that's something that all Buddhist ethical traditions will agree on, getting rid of suffering and not just yours, but everyone's. Yeah, why do they go together? In Buddhist philosophy. Well, Buddhist philosophers give different reasons. Um, let's start with this. Think about your well-being. Are you dependent on other people? Absolutely. Yeah, it's obvious when you think about it. Mm -hmm. You need the people who produce the software for this podcast. You need the planes that you fly about in. You need people who grow your food. You need uh, the doctors you go to. Okay. Unless those people flourish, you're not going to. You put all those people in a concentration camp and your life collapses. Right? Uh, so, uh, of course, many Western philosophers have made this point. Marx is the obvious example. But um, Buddhism sort of locates this in a very general metaphysical principle called Pratitya Samatpada which is the fact that everything is in a network of um, uh, causal flux. So if you're interested in your own well-being, you better be interested in the well-being of other people too. Um, and dually, for, no, reciprocally for them. Okay. So that, that's, that's one thing that's often mentioned. And it, it does seem self-evident on some level that we'll be happier if we reduce our suffering and reduce uh, suffering of other people. But I'm sure. curious about what more concretely or practically have you taken from Zen and by extension Buddhist ethics to actually make your life better? I'm curious about this yeah. for, for selfish reasons, too. Mm. Because I imagine that on some level there there is this sophisticated philosophical dialogue motivating these things, but then not everybody, not every Buddhist is going to be a philosopher. And on some level, these or the truths arrived at will be distilled to them and distributed. Yeah. So that, that's a good question, but a hard question. Look, um, the, Buddhism or Buddhist ethics recommends various things in order to improve your quality of life, if I can put it like that. One is understanding the world in which you live, and that includes your interdependence with other beings. One is uh, not getting quite so attached to things. Um, 
which doesn't mean that you can't want things in the world. I would very much like a lot of suffering in the world to disappear. And there are things that collectively we can do about this. Um, I certainly have desires in that sense. But when things go wrong in my life, you know, when we elect Donald Trump or whatever, which is a complete screw up, um, I understand that uh, I shouldn't get in, uh, even though I think that's a bad thing, I shouldn't take it too personally. Um, so, you know, I, I understand that a lot of the times I get upset is because I'm far too attached to things which I shouldn't be attached to, which I emphasize is not deciding to sit in the cushion and have nothing to do with the world, on the contrary. Um, another thing I've taken away from Buddhist ethics is an understanding of how much I owe to other people and how much, well, maybe how little, but that I can do to help other people, but I should do that little, okay? Um, so, uh, it's changed the way I think about me, it's changed the way I think about other people and my relationship to them. Um, I don't know if that addresses your question. No, it, it very much does. There are uh, contemporary issues I, I saw that you had written and talked about, such as Buddhism's relation to environmental ethics. and with environmental ethics, I can see how okay, reducing global warming will alleviate the, the suffering of people across the world. But is there also a Buddhist obligation or a moral obligation in Buddhism to the world itself? Um. Look, let me let me just say that obligation plays no role in Buddhist ethics. That's that's a deontological notion, and Buddhist ethics is not deontology. Um, but let put that aside. I just wanted to make that clear. Mm -hmm. um, is there an obligation to the world? I mean, do you think that things have value in and of themselves, independent of human interests? Okay, look. This is a disagreement in contemporary Buddhist ethics. Okay. Some Buddhist ethicists have argued that it's um, that one does. It's a, it, it's a consequence of Pratitya Samatpada, the fact that we're in a causal network. I think this is used wrong. Um, uh, the, what's at the basis of Buddhist ethics is, the, is dukkha, suffering. Uh, and that has to do with sentience. So... Um, lot of things in life are not sentient, so they're not a, a concern in and of themselves. But of course their relationship with sentient creatures is absolutely important. And we're you know, doing a lot of things to completely screw up the non-sentient world for sentient people, sentient things, because it's not just people that are sentient, of course. Um, and we're doing that big time. Should we be concerned with that? Absolutely. Should we be concerned with that for Buddhist reasons? If you're a Buddhist, absolutely. So I can see, so then we, we have an obligation to other living things, use the word sentience, but do we then not really have an obligation to Mars or Pluto? We could blow them up. 
for all Buddhist ethics is concerned? Or is that, uh, maybe that's a silly question, but it's what came to mind. Look, if it, if it has no relevance to sentience, then as far as I'm concerned, it has no moral significance. But as I say, you know, there, there is a debate in contemporary Buddhist environmental ethics about that, and people disagree. So this is just my view. Another contemporary issue that I'm curious about, I I spoke with Ray Briggs, who's a professor at Stanford. Uh, they do decision theory, but also have lately been working on uh, gender issues. And I'm curious, they're trans. And I'm curious about how Buddhism relates to questions about mm-hmm. gender. Mm-hmm. That's a very topical question. Uh Um, Look, Buddhism as a religion has been uh, sexually gender very, very patriarchal or conservative. Buddhism as a religion is just as patriarchal as Christianity, Islam. Oh, absolutely. Um, It's interesting how these things can be baked into a conceptual scheme on such a basic level that even though you might be sort of preaching or promoting the alleviation of suffering, you can't really look... You can't look deeply enough inwards to rectify it if it's already like endemic to what you're doing. Look, every religion, every worldview is going to take over things from the ambient culture, usually unconsciously. And most religions, world religions, have taken over patriarchy and they've absorbed it from the, the ambient culture. Um, Buddhism is interesting in the sense that there are various sutras where the Buddha says that gender and sex are of absolutely no importance, that caste is of no importance. In fact, it famously attacked the caste system. Um, so, you know, uh, quite canonically, uh, uh, Gender and uh, sex are of no importance. Uh, you know, enlightenment is the same for everybody, regardless of gender. Um, having said that, the Buddha refused to let women into the Sangha, the priesthood. Um, and when some of his followers complained, he, he agreed to let a few in as long as they were under the control of men. Okay, this is paradigm paternalism, right? Uh, patriarchy. So, um, Buddhism has not been neutral on gender issues, and it's been very sexually conservative. Um, Now, Buddhism is a work in progress. Uh, It's morphed, it's changed a lot in two and a half thousand years, particularly when it goes into China. It's it's moving into the West now, where it's morphing again. And um, slightly more enlightened views about sexuality and gender um, are going to be part of what becomes of Buddhism when it goes into the West. Because, you know, as a religion, Buddhism appeals to 
sort of people who are kind of uh, have more education, um, perhaps more affluent. Um, and those are the areas where sort of women's uh, rights, liberation, whatever you want to call it, have played a much larger role um, than some other sections of our society. So, you know, hopefully the patriarchy, patriarchal aspects of Buddhism is now going to disappear, at least when Buddhism moves into the West, or perhaps more generally the modern world. Um, okay. So that's a kind of sociological comment. Then there's, there's a philosophical issue about not just what Buddhism has made of these issues, but what Buddhism should have made of these issues. Um, and I think the answer to that is pretty clear, um, that any forms of oppressive behaviour, whether they're oppressive behaviour because of gender, sexuality, class, religion, race, are all pernicious things which cause suffering um, and should be gotten rid of. I mean, so this is, um, Buddhism hasn't been historically particularly engaged with political philosophy, but there's a movement called Engage Buddhism, pushed in the, well, rise in the 20th century, um, pushed by people like Thich Nhat Hanh, the 40th Dalai Lama, uh, Suvak Tlaxana, um, and Vedika, uh, who are very conscious of the political ramifications of Buddhism. Uh, and I think that's entirely appropriate. Again, you know, there are debates among scholars whether this is really part of Buddhism or not, but for my money it is. So we just talked a bit about questions about gender, and then you mentioned it wasn't embodied Buddhism. What was the the phrase? Engaged. Engaged Buddhism and its relationship to politics. And granted that I was just talking about talking to Paul Woodruff about philosophy and war. I'm wondering what Buddhism's relation to war and peace is, because I, I, I seem to recall that, I mean, Buddhism is a pretty uh, pacifistic or pacifist religion. Yet, yeah. so is there any say on maybe just war theory on whether or not it's ever okay to pick up arms? Or are you just do you just have to turn the other cheek to repeat that? that yeah. Phrase? Okay. Um, there's no such thing as just war theory in Buddhism, um, uh, and war is violence. It, look, okay, violence is a bad thing. War is obviously violent. War is a bad thing, um, and it's much better not to be violent. Um, in fact, being violent is a bad thing. Um, but Buddhism is not pacifist. It's not like Jainism. Okay. Um, there's a recognition that sometimes violence is necessary. For example, there's uh, one of the sutras which tells a story of the Buddha in a previous life when he's the captain of a ship and um, he knows that someone on the ship is going to kill all the passengers and rob, rob them. And the only way he has of preventing this is killing the person. And he does it. Okay. 
so this is not great um, but it's the best thing in the context and in fact it's done out of compassion it's done out of compassion for the people who this person is going to king, kill but it's also done out of compassion for the person who's going to kill them because um, because if they kill them they're going to suffer badly themselves you know when they're reborn or because of karma or whatever so there is a recognition a canonical recognition that um, violence is sometimes necessary um, it's better if you don't have to do it but sometimes you know we don't live in an ideal life and it is necessary so the hard question is when is it necessary and there's not going to be, there's going to be no concrete answer to that because buddhist ethics is um particularistic you've got to consider each case on its merits but for sure for the most part when wars are fought it is not justified well the the last thing i will ask today since we're talking about violence now is about your martial arts practice do you still practice mm -hmm. martial arts no, I, I gave it up um, when I moved to New York full-time uh, just because there wasn't anybody here I wanted to train with. Um, uh, and what was it? What did you do? Oh, I practiced karate-do. Um, and there are a number of big world variants of karate-do. I, I practiced the one called Chitoryu, and I practiced that for about 25 years. And was it at all related to your interest in Eastern philosophy? No. No, I started a long time before I knew anything about Eastern philosophy. So why why did you start? <laughs> okay, so at the time I lived with my family in Perth in Australia. I had a daughter at that time. I had a daughter, but at that time she was 10. And my wife and I thought it would be a good idea to, for her to learn to defend herself. So she wasn't a particularly physical kid. Um, and my wife said, well, look, she said to her, look, we'll go to this karate car, but I'll come with you and we'll do it together. And so they did. So a couple of years later, we moved to Brisbane. Um, and uh, I used to play baseball, of all things, in Perth. But I really? decided <laughs> to hang up my glove. Um, and I was looking around something to do in Brisbane, and my wife said, "Well, look, you know, I'm going to find a karate club here, and um, we, my, you know, my wife and my daughter, will go and train. Why don't you join us?" And I said, "No, I'm not into hitting people." And she said to me, "Well, it's about not hitting people," and that sounded really stupid to me, right? But she was absolutely right. So I thought, "Okay, I'll give it a go." And within a month, I was hooked. Um, it was just a total experience of mind, body, and as I came to appreciate later, spirit, ethics. Um, so, you know, it's called Karate Do. Okay, Do is the Japanese for the Chinese Tao, as in Taoism, meaning way. Right. So there are lots of doors in Japan, 
uh, Aikido, Karate Do, Kendo, um, Chado, you know, the, um, and they're more than just activities, they're activities which inform how you live your life. Um, and for, for me, Karate Do really was something that informed my life. You know, you, you've got to practice for a long time before you start to, to understand these things, but um, it, it's true. It's no accident that lots of the great Karate Do teachers were heavily influenced by Buddhist thinking. Okay, Graham. Well, this has been a, a wide-ranging and just generally phenomenal conversation on on my part, and I'm sure everybody listening will get a lot out of it as well. So thanks for sharing your knowledge with me. Oh, yeah, you're welcome. I've enjoyed the discussion. Thank you.